when the night has come and the land is dark and the moon is the only light we'll see. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff this week on the show surprisingly packed episode yeah we we really did not plan ahead well we just thought like oh like next week's episode will just be final fantasy 15 because that's coming out and it was like and then like the next day the game awards happened and then the next day the psx happened it's like oh we probably should have thought about that yeah uh so we're gonna try to talk about all of it you know um we're gonna talk about all the psx and all the uh, game awards announcements yeah and just have some fun with that. And then the main topic will be Final Fantasy XV. As we often do with long games like this, this will be spoiler-free week. Yeah, because I am nowhere near done with that game. I am going to finish it tonight, probably. Okay, yeah. So I, I'm really close. <laughs> I feel like I'm not even close at all. Okay, so anyway, um, I mean, we're going to keep playing it. Yeah. Because there's a lot of post-game stuff. But yeah, so we will do a spoiler-free take this week. And then when we're done, we'll do a spoiler, more in-depth take. Um, but yeah, so that'll be, you know, if you haven't played it yet, feel free to listen. We're not going to give anything away. I think this is actually a pretty hard game to spoil. So I Yeah, don't know. like, I don't know what I would spoil about this part yeah. of this game. Uh, there I mean, are six gods. There are, there are some things near the end I could, but I, you know, I'm not going to, so yeah. it's fine. Um, I would appreciate but, it if you did it. Yeah. So why don't we do, first off, just general impressions. We do this a lot with yeah. games, just because I think people want to hear it up front and then we'll get yeah, into yeah. it. Um, I want to set the stage with just what have you played so far, so we have a yeah. bearing I, I was just looking at the timer because I was playing it before you came over. I'm 18 hours into the game in the in-game timer, which, which is, I probably actually played 17 hours because the game the clock keeps going when you're in the pause menu, so uh-huh. I've, like sometimes I've had the game paused and like grabbed like a sandwich or something, you know. But, so yeah, I'm, in terms of the story, I, I have not encountered anything in the story that, like, if I said everything I've learned about the story of this game so far, I don't think any of it would be spoilers even if I'm 18 hours into the game, but I'm at a point where we're about, I'm about to go to, like, a harbor to get onto a boat to go to oh. another place. Uh, okay. I, I have to go talk to uh, Gladiolus's sister, like, and, and then it was said, okay. like, oh, hey, if you do this, you're not going to come back for a little bit. I was like, oh, I'm going to do some hunter quests, I guess. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm 29 hours in. Yeah, that's that's further than I am. <laughs> yeah, and I am in chapter 13. And there's okay, 15... yeah, I guess I'm right at the end of chapter five or something, probably. Yeah, and and I'm at uh, so yeah. Uh, there's 15 chapters total. There is a shift that happens in the game that you've probably heard about, where the open world kind of uh, recedes a little bit and it becomes a little more linear. Yeah, I am deep into that, and I am close to the end of the game. So in terms of the narrative. This is a game where, again, there's a lot of stuff that you're never going to do during, like, your main narrative run-through. So, you know, I will probably finish it around the 30, 35-hour mark, and then I will probably keep going for a while, because there's a lot of other stuff I want to do, but you really can't do it until you're done. So that's kind of where I am with it. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so what's your... Ch- we have not talked about this one I own. No, I have yeah. no idea what your thoughts are. Uh, I like it a lot. There are things about it that I... There are, there are, like, I have a bucket of really of, of niggling issues with this game that are frustrating me. And it's something where, like, uh, there's a lot of stuff I really love about the game. And overall, I'm really positive on it. But it is something where, like, I feel like it could take a turn and this could be, like, the second coming of Metal Gear Solid Five or something for me. Of, like, yeah. there's just enough peppered around of, like, oh, I don't know. I don't know, like, how this is going to go. But so far, I have really enjoyed my time with the game a lot. I think it's magnificent. I think it's one of the best games I've ever played. Um, I had a nagging bucket of issues too, 
and they receded and receded, and I think it gets better as it goes along. Okay. I would say it has like the opposite Metal Gear Solid Five effect, where there was a point where I was I was kind of I, I had that in my mind. Not that I think it's anywhere near that game in terms of like messiness and feeling unfinished, right? But I was like some of the ways it plays with open world mechanics. I was like, is this sacrificing certain things for this? Even though I again I thought overall much more fun and involving. Um, but I think it gets better as it goes along, even um, especially in terms of the story and stuff. And I, I just I have never played a game. Anywhere near like this, I have yeah, never that's played. Definitely true. I have never played a game anywhere near this technologically advanced or impressive. Uh, and you haven't even seen the crazy shit yet. Yeah, no. Um, oh my! I, I am in love with this game. I, I think it's. I think it's phenomenal. So we will. And I and I, I do think there are definitely problems that I want to talk about. Yeah. But this is one of those games that its ambitions are so sky high. Its problems are more interesting than most games like. Uh, successes, right? I think so. Sure, yeah, yeah. This is this is a fucking game, man. Yeah, it's it's really nuts. Like even even not having like seen like the story stuff get crazy and like some like that stuff escalating. Like even just like what it, it like aims to be, even in like the first third or whatever of the game, is so weird and different and strange that like the, the you can't help but admire it, even when it annoys you. Yeah, I. I fucking love this game. One other question: Are you playing it in English or Japanese? Uh, obviously, Japanese voices. Yeah, me too. With, with the, I have never played a game in my life where I more desperately wished that there was a retranslated subtitle track for yeah. just the Japanese dialogue. Because I, I don't know what the fucking English localization is doing. I don't know what pun maniac is on that team. They're but, not there in Japanese. But they are not there in Japanese at all. I have. I don't. I've heard, there's only one pun I've heard in the game in Japanese. It's not even a Japanese pun. It's that Sydney's name is Sydney, and in English they changed her name to Cindy. This is like, that's the one pun you had. You changed that pun, which is such a light pun, I don't even know if it technically counts as a pun, but instead you sprinkled puns into like every sentence of the game. I don't know how it's possible. It's a funny thing, because I know enough Japanese to know when they're wrong. Like, yeah. I couldn't translate it myself, but I can spot a bad translation, you know? And, and, of course, you just can understand it, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but it is a funny thing where, like, and I've heard a lot of, like, complaints about the English dub overall. And if, if you're unsatisfied with, like, the writing and stuff and the acting in English, just play it in Japanese. It's so good. Yeah. The acting is fantastic, I think, in Japanese. Yeah. And the game is so Japanese and it is so anime. I don't think it would work in a different language, frankly. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's something where... It's, we'll talk about it more when you get more deep into like the game discussion but it is something that's it's one of my secret weird joys of this game is playing it in Japanese with the English subtitles and just looking at like how the what did you how did you like where did that come so, from yeah Sydney doesn't have, like almost no one has a weird accent in this game and you know, judging by every single English subtitle it seems like every character has a weird accent in the English dub so yeah and I, I honestly I don't think I've heard a second of it in English because yeah. I don't I haven't even watched like any English gameplay videos or anything, so yeah, I just have the subtitles to go off on, and sometimes I'm like, is that really how they have that character talk? It's yeah, like, fucking bizarre. It's really, it's really, it's fun. It's a fun thing to do with that game. Yeah, and and I, again, I want to praise the game for having dual audio. That is, yeah, no, it's, that's great. If only like Final Fantasy X had that back in the day, right? Yeah, <laughs> we'd all look on that game in a very different way. If yeah. you didn't have like, ha ha ha, yeah, if you didn't have some of that more <laughs> weird, stilted acting in that game. Yeah, anyway, um, I'm glad that we're entering that era. Final Fantasy XV has it, Persona 5 is going to have it. Yeah. 
And those are like the two big JRPGs of the moment. So I feel like that's kind of a, a sea change going forward, hopefully. Yeah, so, no, it's something that I feel definitely should be standard. It's something that it's like, I, I said earlier that I wish it had a retranslated English subtitle track. And I get that, that there's no way, there's no reasonable reason for them to really do that. It's like, it's the one thing that's like, I will absolutely let that go. Like, they right, don't and, need to do that in the way that like, if I bought a movie, I would expect that. Mm-hmm. Because this, it's also like they add stupid puns, but you don't lose the meaning of it if you're reading. Sometimes, for, I, I'm, some, I'm talk, sometimes I'm talking about the larger like story and characters. I don't think you lose. Uh, okay. I don't. Uh, someone like I, I will say I have never had an experience with anything before where I will be like watching the thing and like just paying attention to the dialogue and like just understanding it spoken in Japanese. And then every once in a while, I'll kind of be like, "Oh wait, what did he just say?" And glance down at the subtitles, which is how I watch a lot of stuff. And most times, I just glance down at the subtitles and I'm like, oh, okay. In this game, every single time that happens, I glance down at the subtitles and I'm like, what the fuck are they talking about? That's not what... And, like, it's something where there have been times where, like, I have completely, like, not understood what has been said because I had these two conflicting versions. <laughs> and, like, it has annihilated it. It's like, I come out of conversations like... What were they even talking about? Because I understood it in Japanese, but then trying to, like, adjust my understanding to how they were, like, the English dub was doing is like, what? Fucking, where, where, what do you say? Like, that's not, that's not even the same conversation. That's not even just you put some puns in. That's like, you were talking about different shit. Huh. Yeah, they're like, it's not, it's not all over the place, but it happens just often enough that I'm like, what the hell? That is weird. So anyway, we will talk about all of that. We're getting too into the weeds already, yeah, but yeah. this is this is a game worth talking about. So let's go ahead and do some stuff first. Sean, I got to see something really cool last night. Oh yeah? I went to see Mad Max Fury Road, the black and chrome edition, in theaters. Did they did they have like did it actually like the screen light up and it was shiny in chrome? Did that instead of it being white? I don't know if this theater had the technology to do that. I don't think any theater has the technology to do that. But if you're going to call it Black and Chrome, just imagine. Yes, it would be cool. But no. um, So yes, this is the version of Mad Max. It's coming out on Blu-ray this Tuesday on its own or part of this like bigger box set. Uh, George Miller has been talking about this since the movie came out. That he wanted either to just shoot the movie in black and white or have a concurrent version, like a color and a black and white. And, of course, Warner Brothers would have said to him, just fuck off, we're not making this in black and white. But then the movie won more Oscars than any other movie last year and made a lot of money and they're like okay make it in black and white it's good Um, because it doesn't cost them that much to have him go in and regrade it so did that Uh, they're having a special Blu-ray release of it and for like one night it was in certain theaters around the nation like very very limited I saw it um, I think this was the only theater in town that had it but it was the Denver Film Center the C Film Center in Denver Um, they had it for one night Um, where I also saw it earlier this year because they had it on uh, a 35mm print of the movie which was really cool so, this was my fifth time seeing this movie in theaters, Jeez. which is, like, not planned, but also, this is the rare, like, of a tiny handful of movies I have ever seen, that I've seen a crazy number of times, and I've liked more every single time. Yeah. Fury Road somehow does that to me, and part of it was, this was the special black and white version, and oh my god, it is magnificent. Awesome. It is beautiful. Yeah. I wanted to bathe in it. It was like, it is such a perfect version of that movie to me, and I think... I've seen a lot of confusion around this version of the film, so I kind of want to talk about it a little bit. Sure. Because the the number one thing I see a lot of is, uh, why can't you just turn your TV to black and white? And I'll explain why you're wrong about that in a second. And then number two is, the colors are so beautiful in that movie, why would you want it in black and white? And that's a harder one to answer. Yeah. So let's start with the first one. Sean, you haven't even seen the black and white version yet, right? 
Why can't you just turn your TV to black and white and get the exact same effect? Well, I mean, it's just, you don't... That's just not how that works. Like, like, I mean, you could... I mean, you could do that with anything, like, technically. Yeah. Like, you could if you wanted to, but you wouldn't... Have, like, like what they've done is they've, like, recolorated the movie and, like, adjusted it mm-hmm. to make it look good in black and white because if you just sort of sap the color out of an image, like, the image is going to look kind of, like, nonsense. Like, yeah. it's just going to, like... Like, like, there's not going to be the contrast, that, the sharp contrast that you want between the blacks and the whites because it's just going to be, like, a right. grayscale thing. Yeah, so if you if you really want to, you can just take your Fury Road DVD and turn it to black yeah. and white. I mean, if it you really not... wanted to, you could play Final Fantasy XV in black and white if you, like, tried hard enough and you had the right <laughs> equipment. It would totally be could. incomprehensible visually, but you could do it. Yes, indeed. I cannot wait for the black and chrome version of Final Fantasy XV. Yeah. No, but anyway, yeah, so it's a, yeah, you're exactly right on that. And George Miller's whole process with this was it's not just flipping the switch. Uh, he described it personally as a very high contrast black and white, and that's definitely true. It is. And high contrast means there's a big difference. The, the, the blacks are very black and the whites are very white. And that means there's kind of a... The best way I can actually describe it is if you use Instagram, there's three okay. black and white filters. One of them is called Inkwell, and that's the one that is super high contrast, and it's the one that makes it things look more almost like sketches and stuff. Yeah. That's the kind of work they've done on this, and there is more to it than that. Like, one of the first things I noticed watching the black and chrome version, and I was so happy to get to see this in a theater on the big screen, because that's the way it's meant to be seen, and it just, you can really study the image in that way. And of course, I've seen it theatrically several times, so that was easy for me to compare those experiences. Um... But it's not just that it's high contrast. They've also done a lot of work, I think, in color grading. So the movie looks a lot darker than it did in color, um, which is kind of natural because a lot of it is now black instead of color. But it's also just like Fury Road is a really bright movie. Even the nighttime scenes are very bright and colorful. Yeah, like if you did what you had said of just like flipping the switch, like the whole frame would be white for most of the movie because you're in the sand, you know? Right. But there's a lot of like color to the sand in that movie. There's a lot of color to the skies. And they've darkened the movie considerably. There are things where, like, you know, if the sky was, like, kind of gradiated with a lot of color in the color version, it winds up just being kind of white and distant in this version of the movie. And it means, like, the human figures in the production design stand out a lot more. Um, But, yeah, I think it's a really, really cool version of the movie. It adds so much. There are obviously some things that don't work as well in black and white. And I also think there's things that don't work as well in color. It goes both ways. And it's cool that we have both of them now. But like, just they, they should just take the scenes that look best in black and white and the scenes that look best in color and just <laughs> stitch them together into one insane movie. Right. And, and I was thinking about this. I think the scene that struck me, the two scenes that struck me the strongest in black and white are early on you have that chase that goes into the big sandstorm. Yeah. That in black and white is terrifying and nightmarish in a way it is not in color. In color it's like kind of awe-inspiring and cool almost of like oh my god this giant sandstorm yeah but you don't feel like the danger as much but in black and white it becomes these you know just swirling black masses and then the lightning strikes are really bright because they're just these white patches in the screen and things like that um so that whole sequence feels like a lot more violent and actually the whole movie the movie as a whole feels much more brutal in black and white because like when there's blood, I feel like in the color version, it's almost a little cartoonish. It's like kind of heightened and saturated. In the black and white version, it's just like a black streak running down someone's face. Like the scene where, you know, uh, Furiosa rips um, Imperator Joe's face Immortan off at the Joe. end. Immortan Joe. She's the Imperator, yeah. yeah. Immortan Joe's face off at the end. That plays more graphically in black and white. Sure, yeah. 
I can see that. And then the other scene that just wowed me was the nighttime scenes, which are a really spectacular part of the color version, too. There's basically two scenes. There's the scene where they pass through what winds up being the green place, but it's like this dead area with all the crows. And that's also where they have that fight at night with the crazy dude, and they play Dies Irae and all that. Yeah, yeah. Great scene. In black and white, like, that scene is amazing. It, it's, I don't even know how to describe it, but, like, the blacks are so rich, and everything is just sort of so dark and consuming, and there's so much depth to the tones in that scene. It really shows how good the cinematography was there. Uh, and then the other scene like that is when they're, they find the, the, the women, and they have that one scene at night with them. And that's also a haunting sequence in that, in color, I don't remember there being stars in the sky. There probably right. are in that scene, but I wouldn't have noticed them because you kind of see the blue of the sky more. In black and white, it's it's a sky that's kind of white, and then you see all these specks of light, and there's these stars, and it's a really beautiful image that I don't think comes across much at all in, in the color version. So that's really cool. There's a lot of just like effects and things in the movie that I think work so well in black and white. Like the whole thing where Furiosa has like that war paint on her forehead, which is just grease. She takes off the wheel and yeah, she does yeah. that. That is an idea that works better in black and white because it literally splits her face in, in half. And it's this like black half and this white half. And it's really an interesting, I think, choice. And it almost feels like that was a choice made for black and white more than for color. Um, and then just all the production design of the movie and things like that. Um, I've always thought this about black and white because I love black and white photography. And the thing I love about it is that I think color can be weirdly distracting if you're trying to look at form or detail in something. And yeah, it, it fills the image with a lot more visual information that makes mm -hmm. it so that, like... And it's something that I also feel like video games have run into that necessitates, like, the detective mode Witcher Vision thing, which is yeah. when you have too much visual information in an image, it is very difficult for you to pick out the specific details that people want you to see. And by pulling out visual information by either, like, in the video game, making everything just, like, a stark color or highlighting things in red or making it black and white will make certain things pop in a way that, like, with color and clutter and high-resolution imagery... It's just all like a blur almost to you. Yeah, absolutely. So I, there's a lot of just you can study the production design and the sets and the costumes of this movie. You're constantly noticing things you didn't see in color or seeing them in a very different light. Um, you know, there's always things that I think water looks particularly good in black and white. And just the scenes with water in this movie, whether it's Immortan Joe pushing it out to the big crowd or something like that. Or the scene where their um, Max uh, kind of hijacks the... Um, the big rig in the desert and all the women are kind of washing off that's an interesting scene in black and white but it's just throughout i just found it stunning i love it so much i'm totally like george miller said the reason he did this was way back in the day when he made the road warrior they scored it using a really cheap dupe print which is something you make of just like we need a cheap like 16 millimeter print the cheapest stock is black and white so even though it's a color movie they scored it to a black and white dupe and he said i kind of wish i could release this movie in shitty black and white and so 30 years later, he's been able to kind of... It's not shitty black and white. It's, it's obviously much more production behind it. Yeah. Um, but he kind of got to do that with Fury Road. And I see how in the back of his head, a lot of the planning of this movie just naturally fits black and white. And I think both versions of the movie are equally valid. And I love that they both exist. And I think it's a testament to this phenomenal film 
that you can have a color and a black and white version living alongside each other and they're sort of both equally good. I don't know how many movies you can say that about. Yeah, like I can't, for whatever reason, the number one that one that pops in my head is like, I don't think the Michael Bay Transformers movies would hold no. up very well. Like, those movies are incomprehensible in color and I don't think those, I don't think that's a case where pulling out the color information no. would make the details pop. I think it would just be even more incomprehensible. Yeah, or like, just go back to a great black and white movie. Seven Samurai wouldn't work in color. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, I'm just trying to think of movies that use black and white so distinctively. I mostly go to Kurosawa for that. Um, but yeah, because he does this. It, like, honestly, it is very Kurosawa-esque if you compare this to Rashomon or Seven Samurai, which both use a lot of high contrast imagery. Like, if you think of the last scene in Seven Samurai, where the rain, because on set they just painted it black. Yeah, they dyed it black. So the rain on in the scene is just this deep, dense black cutting through. There's a lot of images like that in this version of Fury Road. Um, so I love it, but I think gun to my head, if you had to ask me which version of the movie I think works better for me, I'd say the black and white version. It's sure. just yeah. like, I wouldn't want to live in a world without the color version, but if I had to choose, I just, man, I can't wait to see it again this way. It's just so spectacular. And just that movie, man, it, that it's just fucking good. It's fucking good. And the, it's again, it's the really rare movie where the more you watch it, it's better because it's just a perfect movie. Like, mm-hmm. Every inch of it is so clearly thought out thematically and visually and aesthetically and narratively. It's amazing. And I, you know, some other people have been drawing this conclusion. I think it's very true. After the events of 2016, that movie is looking awfully prescient. Sure, yeah. I I mean, mean, it's that movie has way more social commentary than I think a lot of the average moviegoer, like, gave it credit for. Because there are so many people... Like, right when that movie came out that you would see on, like, forums and stuff. And it's like, it's a great action movie, but it doesn't have a story. And it's like, you are so not, like, processing what you actually watch there. Because it's got way more story than you think. It's got way more stories story than I think 90% of movies people have seen. Yeah. Because I think the story runs deep and it is told visually. It's a movie with dialogue, but the dialogue is mostly inconsequential. And frankly, I realized this time, the dialogue is mostly funny. Like, the di- like I think he has... George Miller has his tongue planted firmly in cheek with a lot of the, like, future speak and stuff. Sure, yeah. And just how silly it is. And it, it's funny if you let yourself laugh at it. But what's the story and the narrative and what's serious about it is mostly conveyed through visuals and through movement and, you know, maybe brief pockets of important dialogue, but not a lot of it. And that's just something people aren't used to these days. Yeah, maybe now that he's made the black and white version, he'll go back and make the silent movie version. You could, I mean, it's it's amazing. But like, go back to the 2016 thing. I mean, Immortan Joe's first appearance and his big speech to the crowd before he gives them water. That is a Donald Trump rally. Yeah. I don't know how... I hate comparing everything to this motherfucker these days. But, like, what he's saying, he even says, I will give you everything. He says shit like that. And he says, you know, don't get addicted to water. And that's the basic Republican idea of, like, don't get addicted to health care. You don't really need it. Stuff like that. And it's just stunning. And there's one line that really stuck out to me this time, which was... Um, when Furiosa is trying to like calm down Max and realizing she has to like make friends with this guy so they can work together, one of the things she says to him is, um, "You're relying on the gratitude of a very bad man." And I'm thinking, yeah, that should be like the campaign slogan yeah. for the for the anti-Trump movement now. Yeah. Just like you are all relying on the gratitude of a really awful person, and where do you think that will get you? Yeah. So anyway, this movie, man, and in black and white, if you have the chance to see it. Just fucking see it. It's great. 
And I'm glad that it's being widely disseminated. It's not just a Blu-ray release. You can get it digitally and all that. Yeah. Normally, this kind of thing, I think, is kind of relegated to a bonus feature or something. And it's not that. It is a full version of the movie, and it's great. So Awesome. Yeah, I need to check that out at some point. Yeah. So maybe we can have another talk about it at some point. But let's go ahead and get into the news. Okay. Because there's a lot of it. Uh, I'm going to start with the one non-gaming thing. And that is, we got our first full trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And... Yeah, I don't even. I, I, if, if this were any less of a trailer, I'd probably just cut it off the outline because there's so much stuff here. That was a funny fucking it's a, movie. It's trailer. a really good trailer. Like it's, it's one of those things that like I, I keep on thinking this like once a week. I'm just like I really need to watch Guardians of the Galaxy again. That fucking movie was really good. Yeah. And then yeah, this this trailer again was just like God. These characters are awesome. Like they're just they're so well defined and they're so funny and they're so perfectly portrayed. It's like you. So want to just spend time with those characters and just even just getting like a little bit of a tease in the trailer. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, I need to, I need to go see this movie. And it speaks to all of that how well defined they are. That this is like a two minute trailer, and you have big laughs from Drax and Groot and Rocket yeah. and Star Lord and everyone. And and you know they don't anyone no one has a large amount of screen time. This is a two minute trailer, but there are like fully fleshed out comedy bits uh-huh. in this trailer. And I don't know, I can't name the last like movie preview that has done that. Yeah, it, it's it's something that like sometimes you'll see for comedy movies. It was something that I really liked about the trailers for Zootopia is yeah. that they just like made the whole trailer like one like cut down version of a bit from the movie with the sloth. It's like that worked really well. Mm-hmm. And this has like, it, it's not quite that focused, but it's got a very similar approach of just like, yeah, like here's like two or three kind of sequences that we kind of cut between and build the trailer around. But you basically get these reduced versions of full scenes from the movie. Yeah. I mean, so first you have the thing with Rocket and Groot. Yeah. Which is very funny and a reminder that this is, I think Bradley Cooper is a very talented actor. And I also think Rocket might be the best thing he's ever done. Yeah. He is so perfect for that. He's really good. And just. That and then the introduction of Baby Groot and that they're really committing to it. Yeah. You know, Groot died in the last one and this is like a new version of him and I, I it's very funny. Yeah. The, the the whole sequence where he's trying to get tape to put over the button and he's yelling at Star-Lord with Star says it's like, you've got like a nuclear fission reactor in your backpack. If anyone has tape, it's going to be you. That's great. It's a really good line. Really good line, and all of that is fantastic. And then there's kind of a sizzle reel in the middle of the trailer. And then you come back for the last scene where they're all in some weird, like, alien therapy session or something. And Drax's whole, like, bit in that, where he's making fun of uh, Star-Lord for having his, like, love for uh, Gamora revealed... I love how happy Drax is in these trailers. Yeah, and, and it's something where, like, because it, it ends the trailer on, like, the most perfect tease of him laughing at it. It's just like, do me, do me. And we're like, <laughs> I need to see this movie because I want to see where this bit goes because I so want to see what this, like, empath alien is going to say about Drax's deepest, darkest, hidden secrets, you know? Yep. And it's, it's just, it's a weird thing where, like, if you asked me who were the most memorable characters in Guardians of the Galaxy, like, off the top of my head, I'd probably say Groot and Rocket. But then I saw that trailer, and I'm like, it was Drax, kind yeah, Drax, of. Drax just, has the best jokes in that movie. He just sure. jumps off the screen, and again, you can have him being way over the top in this trailer, and it just works, and it's just so funny. Yeah. 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 I, this was great. Yeah, Marvel is on a high streak recently, I feel like. like they, they've got their like core movies that are sort of moving ahead with Avengers and stuff, but then like their weirder stuff with Doctor Strange and Guardians, and now Guardians are moving to the second movie. It just feels... Like, like, Marvel is getting kind of re-energized in a way that's a lot of fun. Yeah, and also, like, I think bringing in different audiences. Um, 
I was thinking about this. I uh, keep in touch with one of my film professors, and uh, she was kind of my mentor at CU. And anyway, I was telling her about Doctor Strange briefly because I thought if there's any superhero movie she would like, it would be that movie because it's just the visuals and this very kaleidoscopic way they do things and that kind of Eastern religion kind of bent to it. And she actually went to see it on my recommendation and really liked it. And this is a person who, like, is allergic to this kind of movie. Right. Which I totally understand. Some people just, the comic book thing is not for them. And that's fine. Yeah, that's fair. But she, like, really liked Doctor Strange. And I think that speaks that Marvel has enough, like, nets out there that they're catching just the weirdest assortment of, like, audiences. Yes, that eventually they'll just bring them together and then shuffle them into the Star Wars pit and then (laughs) brainwash them all, you know? Indeed. But, you know... A lot of people, I think, would call Guardians their favorite Marvel movie, and that sure, trailer yeah. was a nice reminder why. Yeah, it's it's, the, and I just love how colorful the imagery in the trailer mm-hmm. was. Like, it reminded me also of like that Guardians has some of my favorite cinematography of any of the Marvel movies aside of Doctor Strange now. Yeah, and like that, it just sort of like reminded me of the, and actually, like Final Fantasy XV's title card also reminded me of the title card in Guardians of the Galaxy because they are both kind of similar and both equally perfect. Yes. You know. This great mix of being earnest and cheeky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so good. I also... How much of them making these, like, super focused Guardian teasers just showing how, like, good the movie is is a reaction to Suicide Squad trying to steal their bit? Yeah. The Suicide <laughs> Squad trying to steal their bit and being like, we didn't quite get it. Uh, let's take another pass. Let's hire this other company. You make a different trailer. Let's see if you get... That's a little bit closer. Let's try it again. Yeah. I, it, there's, just, there's a confidence to those Guardians teasers. That is really interesting, and I think that movie is going to be fucking big when it comes yeah, out next yeah. year. I mean, because Guardians of the Galaxy 1 was just such a like hit surprise that got yeah. so much bigger on based on word of mouth, that now that it already has this like really dedicated fan base, where kind of like you, I know several people who don't really go in for most of the Marvel stuff, and saw the first Guardians movie, and like saw it like three times in theater. Right. So it definitely has its own sort of dedicated fan base that's there just for the Guardians. I can't wait until Suicide Squad 2 tries to do this. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I know so many people that they're just like, I don't really go in for the comic book movie thing, but I saw Suicide Squad, and now I've got a damaged tattoo on my forehead. (laughs) I want to see the poor fucker who did that. Because someone did it. Yeah. Right? It's like like the whole idea of if you put enough monkeys in a room, they'll write Shakespeare. There's enough people on this planet that someone got a fucking damaged tattoo on their forehead. Yep. It's, you know, and there's... You know, God help them during job interviews. They definitely voted for Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. No, Jonathan, Donald Trump voted for them. <laughs> Donald Trump probably loves Suicide Squad. It's probably his favorite movie. I, I was describing this to, to the same film professor because she was like kind of asking about those DC movies and the, they seem weirdly dark. And I'm like, yeah, someday someone at your school is going to write a dissertation or a master's thesis on the connection between Batman v Superman, oh, yeah. Suicide Squad, and the rise of fascism in the United okay, States. Okay, yeah, no, I, I thought you were going to go like a freshman in a class is going to write about how like Batman v Superman is their favorite movie ever. No, 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 because that's going to happen in a couple of years. It's going to be one of those motherfuckers. That's going to happen, but I also think there's the person who's going to realize, man, those movies employed an awful lot of fascist imagery yeah. in a year where the United States employed a lot of fascist imagery. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just. It, it, actually, for like those kinds of reasons, I'm really worried for those like you know that group of like th- boys who were 13 years old and saw Batman v Superman in the theater and really loved it the way that like a lot of 13 year old boys really love Dark Knight Returns. It's just like, uh oh, yeah, oh no, yeah. like you're, th- th- college is going to be an interesting experience for them. There won't be any consequences for them though. They're, yeah. they're probably white. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about the game awards. Okay, I don't give a shit about the awards. 
No, in, in fact, I think Overwatch was an interesting choice for Game of the Year. Like, I think Overwatch is good, but well, it's, it's better a, games came out. It, I mean, it, it makes sense for the audience they have, but it also depends on how you define it. Because if you're talking about a cultural phenomenon, sure, it's Overwatch. Sure, yeah. But I also think like I have, I think I've played every game in that category. They are all better than Overwatch. Yeah. So, but it's fine. I. I am glad we live in a world where there isn't a like definitive game awards for games because yeah, there is no game Oscars. Because that's the thing: if I talk to anyone about movies, like what's going to win the Oscar, and I'm like, I want to kill you, and and if if I talk to someone about games, they're just like, what's a good game? Yeah, and that's great. It's why I wish the fucking Oscars would go jump off a cliff. But yeah, so anyway, but the game awards do give us some good previews. So. We'll just go through it. We'll build up to the the big one. Okay, yeah. Which I think we define the big one the same way because it's the one that made us cackle crazily. Uh Anyway, but let's start with Mass Effect Andromeda, which continues to advertise itself in the weirdest venues. I mean, it it feels like this is what they were... You know how I said uh, when we talked about their release, like... Their reveal at the PS4 Pro thing that's like, this felt like this is what they were going to show at E3. This trailer they showed here actually feels like what they wanted to show at E3. I have no idea what the fuck their marketing team has been doing. It feels like, how has it taken this long to get, like, this is the first real gameplay footage we've gotten that is that has, like, this... combat and dialogue systems in it. This is the first time we saw the dialogue wheel in this game. This is the first time we saw a reticle in this game. It's like, that took a long fucking time to get to that point. It's why I just don't believe the spring 2017 thing. Oh, God, no. Because There's this, no way it's coming out. This is the kind of trailer you see two years out. Yeah. You know, like... It's so bizarre. Like, I really want to know. Okay, apparently this is coming out in spring. How many people even know there's another Mass Effect coming out? Uh-huh. And, and, like, maybe they could say, oh, I heard they were working on it. And then if I said, what if I told you there were five minutes of footage? And they'd go, where the fuck did they show that? Yeah, what if I told you it's about, a, it's going to come out, like, oh, three months from now about? Like, three, four months? Like, yeah, that, that's what they're saying. And, and that's why I have such a split reaction to everything with this game. This footage was fine. Yeah, was I like I liked it a lot. It's something where it's like I felt like if this had been what they had shown at E3, I would kind of have no problems with the marketing strategy for this game because it's like there are some things of of like I think some of the animation stuff looked weird, particularly the facial animation in some of the dialogue yeah. scenes. And a lot of people have pointed this out. It was just like it just didn't. It looked really stiff, even compared to Bioware stuff of like like Mass Effect two and three and stuff, which had. You know, stiff-ish animations, but given the amount of content in that game and how many conversations and everything, it was like, you could kind of let that pass. And this feels like Dragon Age Inquisition had better facial animation than what you're showing in this trailer. It's a bit weird. Yeah, there's a lot that doesn't feel quite finished. So it's a weird thing. Like, if you take this as the, we're two years away from release, yeah. this is a great trailer. Yeah. Because it does, I, some of the things I like is that it has some familiar Mass Effect touches where I can look at it and go, okay, that's a Mass Effect game. I see the alien species I know. I see the, the dialogue wheel. Yeah, I see, I, like, the Vanguard powers and mm-hmm. stuff. I see all of that. But then it also feels like, this isn't Mass Effect 1, 2, or 3. This is clearly very different in terms of how they're treating the planet and the the, the planets and the design. The exploration the, element. The exploration element. The combat is clearly had, having gone through a big upgrade. So all of that I like. But then it's like... But if you if this is the three months before release trailer, that looks like a broken ass game to me. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Like this feels this looks like alpha footage of a game. This does not feel like like three months or four months out from a game, like that game needs to be almost done and is like in the like bug testing phase, you know? Like that's where you are. Right. And it's 
you will talk about this with uh, one of the other trailers, but this also isn't a scenario like uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild, where you can kind of be coy and just go on the visuals, because that's kind of the kind of game that is. And yeah. I, Zelda is typically kind of marketed in a very mysterious kind of, because it, it's, it's a legend. It's that kind yeah, of yeah. mystical storytelling. That's not what Mass Effect is. So it's kind of weird to be that coy, and then have uh, this trailer come out and be kind of half coy, half we're going to show you stuff. Yeah, because also I feel like the, the one of the other main differences there is that they, like Nintendo, just straight up didn't show anything of Breath of the Wild until they were ready to. Mm-hmm. Whereas with like Mass Effect Andromeda, we have been getting teases of this game for like two or three years that have been like a little cinematic teaser and a little like behind the scenes package at like E3s along the way to like kind of remind you that this game is in development and showing you stuff of that's like. We are making this game, but not showing you anything substantive of it. Whereas Nintendo was just like, yeah, of course we're making the next Zelda game. And then they, like, released their trailer. And then, like, three months later or whatever, they released, like, the name and the full thing at E3. It's like, okay, that's fair enough. Like, I will take that. It's like, you can't... you, But you can't just keep on showing me little teases for this game over and over and over and over again. And then be like, it's coming out in a couple of months. Like, this looks like alpha footage. Like, this does not... Like, you should have shown this footage, like, a year ago from... Not, like, right now. Yeah, it's... It's bizarre. I... There's a... If you just look at, you know, the footage in a vacuum, it's cool. I'm excited. Yeah, it looks like a game I really want to play, or, like, a trailer for a game I really want to play. It's just them insisting that it's coming out in spring 2017. It's like, no, it's not. You're going to delay this game. Just say it it now. If it is, that sounds like a broken game to me. Yeah, like Like, I hope they don't release it in the spring 2017. Yeah, I I don't know. It's it's there's so many warning flags, and there have been over the history of this game's development, where it's you know people have left Bioware, and it seems to have like almost restarted at some point, and and just weird. And then you know we're going to show footage. Uh, No, we're not. And then wait a year, and we're gonna. uh, No, we're not. And just the, the the push and pull with it is so bizarre. It's hard to just talk about the footage. Yeah. So, we'll see. Yeah. Like I I want to play a new Mass Effect. Like I want to play a Mass Effect that is built like for this generation of consoles. Yeah. But I also want that game to be good. And I did like yeah. some of the hints of this is really the first next gen Bioware game because Dragon Age Inquisition sort of straddled the generations. And clearly, there's some things in there that they could never have done in two or three. Yeah, like, I am really excited about the idea of them going back to trying to sort of, like, crack the nut of the planet exploration stuff for Mass Effect 1. That, like, I like Mass Effect 1 a lot, but, like, that system was very bad. Like, their, like, planet stuff was just, like, pretty fucking broken in some places. And so, like, them kind of going back to that and saying, like, how do we make that work? That's really exciting to me, and I want to see them... And, like, the seeing them go back to, like, more traditional RPG-like stuff of the gear systems and stuff that you saw glimpses of in that trailer, that's really exciting to me conceptually because I I love how the ways that they streamlined it in Mass Effect 2, and I think it's one of the best choices they made for that series. But I think it is, like, taking a step back and, like, taking your time with it. Like, I would love to see them kind of, like, put that stuff back in and make it work better with the third-person shooter combat. Yeah, so... We're excited to play this game when it's ready. We're just not sure it's uh, it's fully cooked yet. Yeah. So, uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild yes. had another like two minute trailer. It just, just just looks like a fucking beautiful game. Yeah. Like it's almost something where I feel like they just don't. I kind of just don't want them to put any more trailers out because it's just like it's we're good. But like, I also just put the game out. I know, but I also just love these like lyrical two minute no dialogue just music. 
and just kind of a little tour because I don't feel it's spoiling any of the game for me. And just seeing those periodically is like good for the soul almost. Sure, yeah. And we're going to we'll talk about this later. Um, I think like Nino Kuni 2 looks beautiful and I'm not taking anything away from that by saying this. I think Breath of the Wild looks more like a Miyazaki movie than the game actually made by Studio Ghibli. Sure, yeah. Like, because I've played some of Nino Kuni and then I've seen these trailers. I think they're gorgeous games. But there's something about the Breath of the Wild, the aesthetic, and the very painterly way everything is done, and then the way music works with it, that like makes me feel like I'm watching a trailer for a new Hayao Miyazaki movie or something. Sure. And it's a really cool effect. I don't know. But yeah. This, this game looks good. Yeah, it looks very good. We, I don't think we talked about this last week. There's rumors that that's going to be pushed and not be part of the Nintendo Switch launch. Yeah. And it'll be a, a wind up being a summer release. I'm fine with that. Sure, yeah. I, I, I almost think it makes sense, given that apparently Nintendo still can't get over their supply constraint bullshit. Yeah. Well, maybe we can talk about that later, you motherfuckers. But anyway, um, to have Breath of the Wild coming out when there will be more Switches in the wild. <laughs> maybe yeah. you don't want that out day one. If no one can get the fucking thing, which yeah. may happen. Although them pushing that, like, if that does happen and that game is released, it gets pushed to several months after the Switch is launched. That is just like putting a gun up against the Wii U version of that game's head and pulling the trigger. Pretty like, much. that's just like, yep, you're, I mean, you know, they've already stopped production on Wii U's. It's like the Wii U is a console that in terms of, like, its sales potential and stuff has already failed. But yeah. still, like, that's just sort of, like, brutal of, like... The one last gasp that a lot of Wii U owners had of like, yes, like, finally we're getting a Zelda game on this fucking Nintendo console. And then they're like, oh, we're just gonna, we're just gonna put it out after we already put out our new consoles. Like, okay, great. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. I mean, the other rumor is that that new Mario game we've seen footage of, even though we haven't seen much of it yet, like, that game's done. Like, it is going to be a launch game no yeah. matter what. And it would it would kind of make sense to separate those. It would be weird if you had a Mario and a Zelda at launch. That'd be stacking it a little tight. I'd love yeah. it. It'd be fun. But I'd have to, like, make some hard choices of what I'm going to play. Yeah, so. like, I'm really looking forward to that January stream where Nintendo actually talks about all this stuff. Because at this point, I can't keep straight in my head what Nintendo has officially announced and what has just been, like, rumored and stuff. Because there yeah. has been so many rumors that I'm like... Did, did they ever say that, like, the Joy-Con controllers are also pointers and the touchscreen thing is real? Or is that just a rumor that they said the price? Like, I can't fucking keep it straight because I've seen so many leaks of, and rumors about this fucking thing at this point. Yeah, mostly I'm just trying to ignore it. But that Zelda thing I just was hearing about because it's back in the news with the yeah. trailer and everything. So anyway, um, Telltale announced at the Game Awards that they are taking another beloved series and taking a crap on it probably. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is getting a Telltale game. Because if there's anything I would love to do in the Guardians of the Galaxy verse, it would play it on a shitty engine on my iPhone with bad writing. Yeah, it's to have my like save get corrupted and have to restart from the beginning of the game. And yeah, no, yeah, Telltale's what a what a weird story for that studio of like you know I obviously I have a lot of issues with that first Walking Dead game, but I can see why when it came out in like 2012 or whatever that people loved it a lot. I think like the praise was definitely way overhyped. But, like, sure, like, it was a very different kind of game. But then now, I just, like, there is no excitement for any Telltale thing. There are, like, some people that kind of like some of the Batman stuff because of what I've heard they've done with, like, the twists on the Batman mythos. But, like, I don't feel, like, any excitement in the era of, like, like The Walking Dead Season 3 for Telltale is, like, I think coming out relatively soon, like, within they, a couple of months. At the Game Awards, they set the date is, like, the end of December. Yeah, so it's, like... Who gives a shit? Like, I haven't heard anyone really talk about that. And so, it's such a weird thing for that studio. Like, the path that they have decided to go. 
Yeah, and uh, I will say, the, the things I've heard about the Batman game, even when people are praising it, do not make me want to play that Batman yeah, game. Yeah, no, because it is something where it's like, they, they're praising it, and then they're also like, ah, but still, like, the frame rate is terrible, and it's still buggy, and it's like, it's still really slow, but it's like, but they did this kind of cool twist on Batman's parents that they've kind of, they've done that in the comics before, but okay. Yeah. That's um, fun. Anyway, I just like to make fun of Telltale every once in a while, because I think we have to make up for the ex- extravagant praise they were getting at one point for yeah. shitty games. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, I'm, I'm just waiting for, like, the Captain Crunch Telltale game or something. Like, I just want to see, like, wh- like how low their bar eventually gets for, like, the kind of IPs that they're that's, willing to go for. And that's a good point, too, because they're just doing other people's IPs. Yeah. Like, you would hope, and I know they kind of got their big first push with Walking Dead, but they also, like, did something very original with it. They weren't just doing the story from the TV show or comics. Yeah. And you would hope that, okay, they're good at that, maybe then they do an original title. But now it's just marketing for other people's shit. Like, yeah. And like, stuff... I'm kind of amazed that they haven't said that they're making a Westworld game yet. Because that's oh, they will. Like, that's like, because they already did the Game of Thrones one. Yeah. It feels like every fucking video game website in the planet is already, like, getting the gears ready to, like, switch all the Game of Thrones podcasts over to Westworld podcasts once Game of Thrones is over. Here's the thing. If I had, like, sat down and watched the Westworld pilot, like, the night it aired, I'd, I'd probably like that. I haven't seen it. Yeah. I'm just guessing I would like that show. I hate that show, and I haven't seen a second of it, because people won't shut the fuck up. Welcome to me in Game of Thrones, John. I understand, and I saw Game of Thrones, I must sound like a hipster, but before it was big. I was into sure, it sure, before yeah. it became, like, the thing. You know, people forget in its first two seasons it was pretty modestly rated, and not everyone had seen it yet. So, like, I feel like I can be separate from that. But, with, like, I'm never going to watch that show because pe- the way people talk about it annoys me so much. And it is the exact same way that people talked about, like, the Telltale Walking Dead game back yeah. when it came out. It's, like, the same kind of... There's yeah. something about that, like, it can be really exciting and, and interesting for, for uh, stories to try to tap into that episodic, like, communal thing of, like you know, big surprise twists and leaving little hints and something that, like, you know, Lost, it was a fairly different thing from how we're doing it today, but I think Lost kind of, like, opened the door for that stuff, and then now it just feels like we, every once in a while, we get this thing of, like, Telltale's Walking Dead or, like, Game of Thrones or now Westworld, that, like, regardless of the quality of those things very specifically, I feel like the way that they are, like, courting this very, like, internet nerdy desire to sort of like over discuss things and just like break open the like theorize on everything and be like oh i think it must really be this and this and this and this based on all these hints and all this stuff but it's like oh but i read the book and blah 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 like that I, it, it's it's cancerous to my interest in something it absolutely is and it's a lot of trying to reverse engineer lost Lost had that because it was good and made people want to do it. Yeah, and it had and it built itself on a strong foundation of character-based storytelling first, and yeah. then it built up to being like like a really intricate mysteries. But it was always about like, oh, this cast of characters on this island. Like the first season was just about developing all those characters. Yeah, and like that was and it, like every once in a while you get a little bit of something about a smoke monster or some bullshit. But it was really about like, oh, who is this Korean couple or whatever, you know? Right. Anyway, it's yeah. Fuck you, Westworld. I'm sure you're a perfect... I'm sure everyone working on you is a good, nice person. Yeah. But fuck you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking forward to your Telltale game. Yeah. (laughs) Which everyone will ignore, given the Game of Thrones game. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead and move on. Hideo Kojima came to the Game Awards again. Of course Uh, Well, actually, he didn't get to go last year because of this. Oh, right, yeah. That was the whole thing. That's... So, they gave him... Fuck Konami. Yeah, fuck Konami, as Guillermo del Toro said on Twitter. Yeah. Love that guy. But, you know, I think it's... He got a Lifetime Achievement Award, and I think it speaks to... Like, the Guillermo del Toro thing speaks to why I respect Hideo Kojima so much in this moment, which is that 
it would be we would all applaud Hideo Kojima if he did the Guillermo del Toro thing and said fuck Konami because yeah. if anyone has a right to say that it's him the guy who fucking built Konami in some way yeah. as a modern like powerhouse um but he's been so above everything and I so respect that and that yeah. he's just kept working he's never said anything publicly about that and he's out of contract now so I think he probably could if he wanted to sure, yeah. but he hasn't and I think that's why it was, I think, a very emotional moment at the Game Awards where Jeff Keighley gave him his award and all that and gave the little speech. So that was cool. Yeah. Um, but even better was yeah. Hideo Kojima brought another trailer for Death Stranding. And this wasn't just like a little twist on that one from E3. It, it oh, was no. a whole other trailer. Like, it was like five minutes long or something. It was a, yep. it was a Kojima trailer in it was a lot a, of ways. It was a Kojima trailer, and at some point we're just going to have to start calling these Kojima short films. Yeah, exactly. Be- they're so good. They're so fucking good. And I just love... I just started following Kojima on Twitter like a while ago. And there's something about like... Even, like, like, even before all the shit... Like all the stuff he tweets about... Like one, he tweets about Godzilla constantly. Which is like... <laughs> So just of course he to does. my heart, like he, I mean, he like tweets pictures of like, like he like of like, oh, I just got the new Shin Gojira like figure, and like he'll tweet a picture <laughs> of it like stood next to like the figure replica of the original 1954 Godzilla suit and stuff like that. So obviously, I fucking love this dude and follow him on Twitter. But then also, all he tweets about is like Godzilla, like weird obscure movies that he just picked up on like Blu-ray or something. Guillermo del Toro, Norman Reedus. And Mads Mikkelsen, which he tweeted about constantly for like three months, and lo and behold, in his new Death Stranding trailer, one, it starts with fucking a digital Guillermo del Toro, which is like, it took me like a half a second to be like, is that Guillermo? Because obviously, like, he's Guillermo del Toro is not an actor, so you don't see him as much, so he's not as immediately visually recognizable to me. I was like, is that... No way, and I, like, pulled out my phone and, like, looked up, like, Googled him. It's like, that is, yeah, that is exactly Guillermo del Toro. And then, like, three minutes later in the trailer, it's like, okay, now you're fucking shitting me. That's just Mads Mikkelsen. That's just Mads Mikkelsen. What, what are you doing, Kojima? You're just, he's just taking all of his famous, like, celebrities and actors and stuff and just putting them in these weird trailers for his weird game, and I love that. And I love that... There's no guarantee any of those people will be in the final game. Yeah, I have no idea. Like, I feel like probably Norman Reedus and Mads Mikkelsen at least are going to be because they've kind of like put that in the trailers of like Norman Reedus in Death Stranding. Yeah. I I suspect maybe Guillermo del Toro won't be because they didn't do that with him. But like, but I also love the idea that maybe. He's just like using Sony's money and inviting people over onto the mocap stage and just producing weird trailers. Yeah. And Sony just trusts that he's going to make a game at some point, but he has no idea, which would be the most Hideo Kojima thing he could yeah. do. Yeah. Like, as we were talking about before we started recording the podcast, that it would be amazing if the whole thing that Kojima was doing is that his whole new studio was just producing trailers for a game, and that was it. That's all that they are working on, and they just try to keep that con going for years. It's like, like yeah, it's in development. Like, we're working on it it's just a little bit of ways off but all they keep on doing is putting out these like really beautiful complex avant-garde full cg trailers with not a hint of gameplay anywhere in them not even like suggesting at a game mechanic or anything because no. neither of these trailers have even done that they haven't even gestured towards it you don't even have any idea what genre this could go in exactly is it, is it a shooter is it a is it like an adventure game is, is it, it a stealth, stealth game? game is it like a fucking real-time strategy game like i have no idea is it like an updated version of dragon's lair where you like have to tell Guillermo del Toro to go right. Yeah, or left. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. That would be 
That would be amazing if it was just an FMV game with like really great CG instead of live action video. That's actually that's what I want. Yeah, that would be so good. That would be so amazing. Fuck. And it has no dialogue. It's just obscure images. Nothing makes sense. What, what if that is actually what it is? What if he's just making these trailers and like making these trailers for years, and then like eventually we like build up like you know every three months or another or so he puts out another five minute trailer until we have several hours of like complete footage of like just random bullshit trailers and then his video game is just playing those trailers in sequence but now you have to input commands dragon slayer style and but like there's no extra footage it's just like if you fail the command it just like puts up a game over screen you don't get to see like a specific death animation yeah that'd be great that'd be great and i love that this like the 183 was so good but this one like even ups the weird quotient where you have Guillermo del Toro with a baby in a canister. I mean, it's, in, at first it's an empty canister, and then like a baby just materializes inside of the canister. Yes. So it's like a little bit weirder than just having and, a baby in a canister. And apparently, if you sync up the two trailers, there's a moment where Norman Reedus like passes the baby off, and it turns into the baby in Guillermo del yeah. Toro's canister. Anyway, um, and Kojima confirmed that by retweeting the Kotaku article about it, which yeah. I love. That's hilarious. But anyway. Um, so yeah, you have all of that. He's got the baby in the canister. You're in like World War One London or something. Yeah, with like this like weird tank with like dead squids on it, just like going over this bridge with a bunch of soldiers. And Guillermo del Toro is like really freaked out, and he like goes under this bridge into this tunnel, and then he like drops the no. He, I don't even know what happens to the baby, but there's like a baby mannequin. Yeah, the, yeah. There's up. a there's a live baby that has teleported into a can. And there is a baby mannequin with its eye poked out that is, like, floating in some sludge. And it floats until it gets to Mads Mikkelsen and his cronies in... And his cronies are, like, dead people that are, like, hacked into his head or something. Right. Like, it, 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 yeah, but it's Mads Mikkelsen. And, he and he's, takes, like, mind-controlling them. Yeah, and... and he takes off his helmet and you just see him and he just stares menacingly into the camera for, like, a minute. And, God, the animation in this is good because it just looks like Mads Mikkelsen. Like, yeah. it is... Robert Zemeckis is seeing that and being angry that he never pulled that off in his stupid Beowulf Christmas Carol movies. Yeah. But yeah, like, because it's just him, but with crazy makeup and stuff. It's great. And he does some weird things. And I, it's, it's like the world's greatest, like, drug trip dream. Yeah. It's awesome. And it's just, it's got that, like, what you ideally want from Kojima's storytelling, where it feels like just beyond the edge of your grasp, there's some sort of weird enlightenment being taken place that, like, you're reaching towards. And, like, it's, I think it's something that, like, he's very good in those, like, short spurts where, like, in his more full stuff of, like, a Metal Gear Solid 2 or something where it's, like, you reach the end and then you have, like, a 30-minute, like, dissertation written by a 14-year-old about, like, the internet. And you're like, okay, you need... I cannot take this. This is, like, you are going way too far. These, like, little tiny glimpses of it, like, make it seem so much more convincing. Of Like, yes, it is... This is, like, this pure... It's, like, he's unlocking the secrets of modern society before my eyes. But, like, but it, like, it ends before you can quite get there. The other thing, I think, way you could say that is he's a really good visual storyteller. Exactly, I actually yeah. think dialogue is frequently his downfall. Um, but like, dialogue if is I, his downfall. If I, <laughs> I think we could just cut this conversation there. That pretty much covers it. But, no, if I think of, like, my favorite things from Metal Gear Solid and, like, why specifically uh, Metal Gear Solid 3 is my favorite, yeah. it's because that is the game that relies the most on aesthetics and mood and tone and atmosphere. That's, like, what makes that image, or the the, uh, the ending as okay. powerful as it is, is that it is mostly a, like, dialogue-less, like, montage. Yeah. And what dialogue there is is just kind of, like, meaningless stuff from the president. Exactly. Well, and from this day on, you will be known as Big, Big Boss. Boss. But everything else in that last 
last five minutes is so powerful and it's so yeah i i almost hope death stranding has no dialogue like i want i hope he's like realized that about himself and it's like I'm Hideo Kojima. They will give me money to do whatever the fuck I want. Yeah, like, look at these two trailers I put out. Like, this is proof more than anything <laughs> that I can do whatever the fuck I want and they'll just give me money. It's great. They'll, they, they just gave me a goddamn Lifetime Achievement Award and this is what I brought to their stage. <laughs> it is. It is wonderful. And God bless Hideo Kojima for being yeah. part of this industry still. Yeah. And for just, I mean, consistently throughout his entire career just putting out the most amazing fucking trailers. Yes. Like, legitimately the trailers for Metal Gear Solid 5 are like a 2 billion times better version of that story than the actual story told of that game. Yes. Because it's pretty much all the story It's footage. all the story, but it's just put to like a really cool song and cut in a really exciting way. Yes. Anyway, let's go ahead and move on to the PlayStation experience. Yes, the PSX. Which uh, has grown into a bigger and bigger thing until like this was, I think they did like more announcements here than they did at E3. Yeah, like it was a solid like 90 minute presentation. They got into the weeds and we'll get into the individual games, but I was describing some of this to my little brother because he doesn't follow all of this and he doesn't have a PS4. But I was saying I was catching up on some trailers today and he's like, did they have anything good coming out? And I was like, I'm actually... I don't even know how to process how many games are coming out for the PS4. It was pretty ridiculous. It was like because between I, this and E3, yeah, and like it, it was just like watching the, the the conference live streamed. It was just like, oh, we're go- I'm just going to talk about a game, and then now we're going to talk about another game, and then like show the trailer, and then show a trailer, and then show some gameplay, and then show a trailer. Okay, that's it for me. And then another person walks on stage. It's like, okay, and here's this video game, and here's this video game. And it was like. It was just like 90 minutes of them introducing games and like like remake collections and like new games and showing footage of like games they've already announced. It was just nonstop. Like I think it took a little while for the PS4 to rev up in terms of f- having a full like catalog of exclusives. Yeah. But they have clearly gotten there. And I, I don't know if I've ever lived through a console that had this kind of barrage coming. If you compare, yeah. if you co- collect the big AAA titles like God of War 4 and Last of Us 2 and more Uncharted stuff and all of that, well, Horizon Zero Dawn, all those yeah. big things, and then you have all the like collections they're doing, like they have, you know, they have their wipeouts and they have their Yakuza and they have all this stuff, Crash right? Bandicoot. Crash Bandicoot, all this stuff. And then you compare like JRPG imports and things and that are... And fucking Persona 5 is a Persona PS4 5. exclusive. Yeah. Well, with PS3, but it's a Sony exclusive. Right. You have that, and you have... like I, Persona 5 is hard to classify. It's pretty much AAA at this point, kind of. Sure, yeah. It's in so, a weird in between. gray area. Yeah. yeah. But you have all of that. You have you know the games that they're just bringing over that are not even going to be advertised here, like Digimon Story and Digimon World yeah. and just things that... And all the visual novels. Like, it's an insane catalog that the PS4 is building. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it, yeah, it was just like, like you said, the, the PSX in past years, like there has been some interesting things, but this one was just like, because again, I was watching it live streamed, and I just kept on thinking like, this has got to be almost over, right? Like this is, like they have shown so many games, I can't even remember all the games that they've showed in this fucking thing. And they opened with Uncharted DLC, like yeah. So let's talk about some of that. Yeah, uh, Uncharted: The Lost Legacy is um, basically going to be like The Last of Us Left Behind for Uncharted Four, yeah. although with a totally different set of characters. It's Nadine and Chloe. Yes, Chloe um, making her triumphant return to the Uncharted yes. series, which got a, like a huge applause from the audience. And I have to admit, like I was pretty stoked because I like replaying through those games on the Uncharted collection reminded me of like, oh yeah, that's a really great character. She's so yeah. much fun. It's it's a weird thing. I think the idea for this, I'm super psyched. I love Chloe. I think this will be a lot of fun just knowing how good Uncharted 4 was and having them do like another, you know, probably three, four hour adventure with Chloe. That's going to be a blast. I thought this trailer was boring as sin. Sure, yeah. I thought, be like, 
it was especially weird because I had it spoiled for me that it was Chloe. Right. So when I watched the trailer, like, it's eight fucking minutes of waiting to figure out who this person is. And even if I hadn't known, I probably could have guessed because you hear her talk a little bit. And it's just like, nothing really happens. And it's just, I don't know. It, it, yeah, I only, since, because I, because this was the first thing they showed and I missed the very, very beginning of the live stream. So I caught like the last three minutes or so of the trailer. Yeah. And watching only the last three minutes of the trailer was really exciting. I can see, okay. yeah, like that, because I actually I haven't even seen the full oh, thing. Oh, the yet. first five minutes are just her kind of moving through the city a little bit, but nothing really happens. Like, because there's a lot of points where there's one big thing that happens in the middle where she gets kind of accosted by some guards. Yeah. And you think, that's, I think that's about where I started. Okay, but like there's a scene where she gets accosted at the end and she fights back. But there's a scene okay. in the middle where she gets accosted and does nothing and just kind of waits through it. Oh, okay. And then keeps going. And I was like, why isn't that just the moment where like we unveil this thing? Or like, if that isn't, maybe just start where you started watching? Like, it, this did not need to be an eight minute gameplay demo because there's not really any gameplay in it. So, like, even for Uncharted, and I know it's a Naughty Dog thing to have a lot of you just moving around and stuff, but this was a, you know, very scripted, just you're moving through sequence, and it's not the kind of thing that I think lends itself well. Like, like you know, when they showed the Uncharted 4 demo at E3 two years ago that was the big car chase, yeah. that's a great thing to show for, like, sure, an yeah. demo, because that's gameplay heavy and all that. This was just, I thought, kind of boring. But I like the idea of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see how this, like, what this culminates in, because... Yeah, Left Behind was one of my favorite games of the year it came out. It was one of the top ten games, one might say, of the year that came out. Yeah. And so, like, they've proven that they can do really good single-player DLC. And and that was just, like, because it just had never occurred to me of, like, thinking about, oh, because we knew that they were going to do uh, single-player, like, add-on stuff for Uncharted 4 because they said that when it came out. But, like, it was always something like, well, this is, like, clearly the end of, like, Nate and Elena's story. They're not, they can't possibly bring them back. So is it, like, a Sully spinoff? Is it a Sam spinoff? And, like, it had never really occurred to me, like, oh, yeah, shit. Like, like have that, like, Nadine, who's a great character in Charter 4, and then bring back Chloe. Like, that's a really good idea. Yeah. No, this will be good. I'm excited. Um, there's some other cool Uncharted 4 stuff coming out. I think that survival mode they're doing sounds cool. Yeah, I, because I, I like the shooting in that game a lot, but I don't have, for whatever reason, I'm not, like, really drawn to the multiplayer in that, so the idea of, like, being able to sort of, like, just jump in, like, put on a podcast and play survival mode is really appealing to me. Yeah. So anyway, uh, let's stick with the Naughty Dog stuff. Yeah. Uh, Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy... It's a good name. Yeah, so yeah. I, I didn't catch what exactly this is. Is this the original? Like... It, it's the first three Crash Bandicoot games remastered for the PS4. But like the thing that's really awesome about it is that it's like it is not just oh we like up the resolution and made it widescreen. It is they like completely redid the visuals. So it's like it is oh, a wow. yeah it is like a high poly like redone model for Crash in the environments and everything. It looks really nice. It's it's I might pick this up because I have quite a bit of nostalgia for Crash Two because yeah. I played a lot at a friend's house because he had a PS1 and like. Especially the thing that always gets me with Crash Bandicoot are the sound effects because the sound effects in that game are just absolutely perfect. They are some of the best video game sound effects around. And like, while the visuals have been completely upgraded, the sound effects are utterly untouched based on that trailer. Which so is good. yeah, so that's like I just heard the like and like okay, yeah, I'm in. I'm like I'll get down for this. I'll play some Crash Bandicoot. No, I have no idea how well these games hold up now. Yeah, not that well based on the Uncharted Four thing. But I was gonna say my. Hope for this game is that there's like a bonus mode where it's just Nate and Elena doing commentary over it while you play. That'd be and so, so good. it's like, what's a bandicoot? I don't know, he's a bandicoot. Yeah. It's so funny. Anyway, but uh, yeah, no, I'm looking forward for this because that's, I, uh, this is, this is also a game I played, not at a friend's house, but at a cousin's house is where yeah. I would play this. So I have some fond memories of Crash. And it's also kind of my kind of game. So yeah. it could be fun. 
Um, cool to have. Cool to have. We have every single Naughty Dog game from the last generation on the PS4. Maybe we can just start getting every Naughty Dog game. Period on this fucking system. Yeah, like they should just do for Naughty Dog what uh, Microsoft did with Rare of like the Rare Replay collection. Like just like put. Obviously, since Naughty Dog has put a lot a lot more recent games than Rare did, like that would be a much bigger collection in terms of like file size and stuff. But that would still still be fucking awesome to just have like. The Crash 1 and, like, some, like, the weird, obscure fighting games that Naughty Dog actually started on and, like, go from there all the way up to fucking Uncharted 4 and, like, The Last of Us again. It's like, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, like, uh, you know, I started using that folder system on PS4. Yeah. And the first folder I made was a Naughty Dog folder. Okay, and yeah. just throw Uncharted, Uncharted 4 and, uh, you know, The Last of Us in there. And it will grow, which is yeah. great. So, yeah, we'll have, so we'll have Crash in there. Maybe they can get their Jack and Daxter in there. Yeah. It'll be good. So, anyway, that's that. And then the big Naughty Dog announcement... Was The Last of Us Part 2. They're going Godfather style with this. Yes. And it it is insane how much them calling it Part 2 puts a huge amount of confidence in me for them going back to The Last of Us. And like specifically going back to Joel and Ellie as the main Mm -hmm. characters. Because it was like... That was something I think a lot of people feel that, like for good reason that The Last of Us is such a perfect self-contained story. That the idea of going back to that well is a bit like... We don't need that. Like, you see that so often with sequels that it's like, the first one is perfect. We, like, there's nothing else to do with this. But then them, like, one, it is an unbelievably good trailer. And then them ending with it saying The Last of Us Part 2. I'm like, okay, that is such a confident declaration of what they envisioned that game to be. That it is not The Last of Us 2. It is the second part of this story. That, like, whether or not they had that envisioned in the first place. But, like, that idea of... That obviously, like, you know, Last of Us 1 is going to be completely self-contained, but then continuing some sort of, like, thematic whatever it is at the core of that game and developing that in a different way and exploring that in a different way. I have so much confidence and faith in that studio. And then putting their foot down and saying Part 2, I'm like, okay, I'm with you. Like, I'll I'll accept that. Yeah, no, I I think I said this on Twitter. I was so skeptical about a Last of Us trailer until the moment this started. And then I was like, oh... They got this. Yeah. They got this. And by the end of it, just, this is Naughty Dog. They are, like, the most reliable developer out there at this point. They know what they're doing. Yeah. And it's and there is something about, like, you know, I, The Last of Us is definitely one of my favorite games ever. And, like, just hearing, like, Ashley Johnson back as Ellie and, like, but that older Ellie, like, you just get that, you, like, hear her. And just immediately, like, oh, fuck. Like, this character, you know? Like, yeah. I, like, she grew I, up. She... Yeah, I just, I need to, like, even if, like, the story of Last of Us 1 is complete, like, this person is not done, you know, like, I want to see where she, like, how her life continues. And this is clearly, you know, this is a cinematic trailer, It's, it's not gameplay or anything, but it's such a clear statement of intent, because they've done interviews since saying... Ellie is going to be the character in this. She's the playable yeah. character. But I think I could have gathered that just from watching it. Mm-hmm. Because Joel shows up, as he should, but it's a small appearance and clearly he is there for Ellie this time, narratively, whereas Ellie was part of Joel's story last time. Yeah. Like The Last of Us 1 is Joel's arc and it's kind of wrapped up at the end. But Ellie is still in progress. You know, I think Joel reaches an emotional kind of conclusion in The Last of Us. Definitely, yeah. And his emotional conclusion is denying her an emotional conclusion. And so you see that is where they decided to go with this for, as you say, part two. And yeah, so that trailer is unbelievable. I hope that's like the first scene of the game because Uh it's such a great, you know, if you haven't seen it, what happens is you're in this weird little, you know, shack and you go inside and Ellie is covered in blood and she gets a guitar out and starts singing this like hymn. 
and it's very fucking dark. Yeah, and, and, like, it, and the blood like, is running down her cheek. And the camera is like panning around in the cabin, and you're seeing like dead bodies and blood on yeah. the floor. And okay, I mean, there's this one moment where she has to tune the guitar, so she moves and tunes the peg, and when she takes her hand off, there's blood all over the peg. Yeah, and stuff like that. And yeah, there's that body there. And as she finishes singing, Joel walks in, and you've got Troy Baker doing that wonderful Joel voice. Um, yeah, and then the way the camera pans around Joel to reveal that, like, there is just this, like, mutilated corpse at her feet the entire time while she was playing the song. It's like, okay, yeah, this game is going places. It's going yeah. dark. Yeah. I and mean, obviously The Last of Us was already insanely dark, but, like, there's something even darker about, like, like pun book girl who, I, now that I think about it, Ellie was probably actually the one who put all the puns into the FF15 <laughs> dub because she has her fucking book with her all the time. But, like, seeing that, it's like, oh, yeah, like, she's... She's not that girl anymore, you know? Like, she yeah. obviously, like, she started that process over the course of the first game, but, like, seeing that here, it's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Crazy. All right, so that's The Last of Us Part Two. Probably won't be out for a very long time, but... Yeah, it was, yeah, they, they, they kind of, like, set that up when they announced the trailers. Like, this is, like, in development, and it's a long way off, but we wanted to give the fans, like, a first peek at mm. that, what's going on. Uh, the other, only other piece of news is that Bruce Straley is not working on this game. Yeah, he's gone like... on sabbatical. Yeah, so Neil Druckmann uh, is... This is directing it on his own. He had co-directed The Last of Us with Bruce Straley. Same thing for Uncharted 4. Um, so I hope Bruce Straley has fun. Uh, probably just off in the wilderness meditating is my guess. Yeah. I, I wonder if like he saw like how dark Neil Druckmann wanted to go with The Last of Us 2. He's like, I gotta take a fucking vacation, man. Like, I, you got this. Like, I gotta, I'm just gonna go on a mountain somewhere. Like, I can't take this. Like, even if you compare Uncharted 4 to the other Uncharted's, it's a pretty heavy game. Yeah. So yeah. Uncharted 4 is much more fun than The Last of Us, but compared to Uncharted 1, 2, 3, it goes places. Yeah, it's a dark game. Yeah, so anyway, uh, great game. Lots of great games. Yeah. So let's go ahead and move on in no particular order. Uh, Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite yes. is what we're going to have for Marvel vs. Capcom 4. Sounds like it's... Is it a PS4 exclusive? Is that what it um, is? I, I feel like the, all this like information is so in flux. Of what I kind of gathered after the, the event was that it was maybe a PS4 first, but it was okay. like a first console exclusive, but it sounded like it was going to go multi-platform at some point, okay. if not right away. So we got that coming out. Uh, Marvel vs. Capcom 3 was also released for the PS4. Yes. Kind of as a surprise, so you can play that if you want. Um, there was a number of different announcements over the course of that of stuff like Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3 that was like, hey, and you can just do this now. Yeah. That, like, I always love those announcements. That's always cool. So, yeah, hope this game is good. Yeah. I haven't, I, I haven't played a ton of these games, but they're... Yeah, I played a lot of Marvel vs. Capcom 2 because yes. there was an arcade machine by where I got guitar practice lessons when I was in, like, fucking fifth grade or something. So I played a lot yeah. of that. And I, I, you know, I, I'm not super into fighting games, but if I was going to get one, it would be a Marvel vs. Capcom game. And I liked... Oh, they're great. Yeah, I, I liked in the trailer that they... One, it was sort of interesting. They're going with 2v2 matches instead of 3v3 matches, which is what it's traditionally been. And they kind of signaled that in the trailer by having it be uh, Ryu and uh, Mega Man, of course, on the Capcom side. But I thought it was really interesting that they picked Iron Man and Miss Marvel for... The, or Captain Marvel, Miss Marvel, for the... Uh, Marvel side of it and not have it be Captain America. I thought that was just like kind of cool to signal the the broader cast than just like the the classic characters. And then also, I don't think they have a, a, specifically addressed this yet, but all the rumors that were coming out before this game was out was that a part of the sort of the mission statement on the Marvel side of things is that they wanted to be more unified around their cinematic universe stuff. So that means that maybe X Men characters are not going to be there, which would be a pretty significant change, considering that I'm, as far as I understand, this whole franchise really started as an X Men versus Street Fighter thing. So then, like, for also the, like the Marvel character I play in this game is is Wolverine. Yeah, yeah, he's a main character as well. Yeah. yeah, 
So, well, we'll see. Maybe, yeah. you know what would be great? If the one X-Men they have in there is Deadpool. That would be fucking that, funny. That would be really funny. Yeah. I, I hope that they at least have Wolverine in there, because I feel like he's such a popular character that'd be kind of crazy for them not to put right. him in there. Yeah, I actually, I forgot. I, I've played a lot of uh, 3. It had a Vita port. That's yes, a really, yeah, it it's a lot of fun. So I, yeah, this is, these are never games I've played a ton of, but playing casually, I've always loved these. So. Yeah, they're they're really sort of engaging, flashy, big games yeah. with a lot of characters. So they're they're fun to kind of mash around in for sure. Yep. Uh, speaking of just mashing around and shit, Knack Two. <laughs> this was I I still can't believe that they announced Knack Two, and I kind of can't believe how much I like the trailer for it. That's my reaction because here's the I tweeted. I don't understand this when they announced Knack 2, and I legitimately didn't. And then I watched the trailer, and as someone who played Knack, that was like the first PS4 game I put in my system. Yeah. And it's not a good game. I want to stress that. Yeah, I have but not I, played it. But I think it's a game with, that had interesting ideas and could have been good. But then I watched that Knack 2 trailer, and I'm like, that's what I wanted. That looks good. Like, it, like, it, like that trailer is cut... To specifically address people's problems with Mac One, I feel like yeah, because like, it looked like if like you know I obviously I did not play Mac One, but like I remember the trailers for the original Mac being like very sort of dull and standard and like looked like a trailer for a bad Dream, DreamWorks kind of movie, and then this was like fun and exciting and showed a lot of combat and gameplay and like had a whole co-op thing and had like the fun pop song is like yeah, yeah. like hey well, Mac. Knack, this fun, loving, cool Knack dude. Let's get, let's hang with him. Knack One had a co-op mode that is like the worst I've ever played for a couch co-op game because you could just like leave the other person off screen and things like that. That sounds like like playing as Tails in Sonic the Hedgehog or something. Pretty yeah. much. Um, but they were very clearly showing co-op works. They had like all the camera angles are very different than what you had in Knack One to I think address a problem there. Like you're much further out yeah. and it's almost a top-down kind of thing. Um, so I actually came out of that, I'm like, I would play that game. Like, if you just announced that as, like, if if there was no Knack 1, and they just put that on, like, Knack, I'd be like, that looks good. Yeah. So, I don't know, I'm weird. This, I don't get why they're making a Knack 2. Yeah. But, it's... that, now that they are, it looks kind of good. I like, I just like to think that, like, Mark Cerny, who's the, the guy who, the, sort of the, the lead behind Knack 1, and, like, you've seen him on the stage announcing, like, the PlayStation 4 and the PS4 Pro and stuff. He's, like, this, like, genius video game programmer who, like, made Marble Blast Ultra or whatever. Or Marble Madness, I mean, when he was, like, 16. I like to think that, like, he, like, hacked into the, like, uh, private email accounts of, like, all the studio heads at Sony and is, like, blackmailing them to force them to allow him to make Knack 2. Because it's, like, he just, he knows that there's this magical game deep inside of Knack. I, and I, just I, nobody has seen his, his genius vision yet. I thought you were going to say, like, everyone at PlayStation is just, they want to keep him happy. So they're just like, of course you can make yes, it. Yeah, it was Knack a huge hit. Everyone loves Knack. Mark, like, it's, a, like, look at all these, like, it's, it's, it's an internet internet thing like everyone loves knack everyone is asking for knack 2 it's not a joke at all yep. it's, they're not making fun of it at all but anyway we're getting knack 2 uh maybe it'll be good yeah i've you know i have I've, nothing I, against it i'm sure i'm never going to play this game because it's like not really my thing but i am so happy that there's just that that is real that that's just a thing that is happening because it seems so ridiculous and impossible and there were so many people making stupid jokes about like oh what are they going to announce at PSX oh I bet they're going to announce NAC 2 and then now all those people are like huh I guess they were announcing NAC 2 
I I really actually honestly I didn't see that coming. I was just having a I was having a laugh. I wonder if there's anyone who was more excited about the Knack Two announcement than the Last of Us Two announcement. <laughs> yeah, this is like yeah, they got to be out there, right? I mean, you, I feel like this is a PSX for everybody that yes. everyone had some one announcement in this that they could get very excited about, and for two people, it was Knack Two. Yeah, uh, Wipeout. Is coming back to yes, the PS4. Yes, they're as doing the... a Wipeout collection for the yeah. PS4 that looks really cool. Looks cool. I uh, I think, is one of them the Vita game 2048? Uh, I don't remember which ones okay. it is. It probably, because I think there were three of them in the collection. Because so. uh, that was an early like PS Plus game, and that's an okay yeah. game. So I, I think this could be fun. Yeah, I, that... I'll play me some Wipeout. Those are fun. Those are definitely fun. So that's that something cool. that I feel like this generation has had a weird dearth of racing games. Like, you have your Forza stuff on Xbox, and then you have like... You have, like, two Need for Speed games. And okay. then there's a bunch of, like, weird racing games on PC that are kind of, like, getting traction with, like, like racing Sean, simulation games. Sean, you're forgetting the most important one. Drive no, Club. No, no, I'm not. No, that's not a real thing. Drive, Drive Club's not a video game. That's just a, like, car simulation, like, production software. That's just that's just a game. That's, that's a piece of software that you load up driveclub.exe on your, like, fancy computer. And you go, like, simulate the experience of, jac- of ejaculating into a car. <laughs> Based on, this is all I've got based on the announcement I've heard. That, like, I mean, that was what that guy was talking about, I'm pretty sure. He wasn't saying it, but the tone, the tone of his voice kind of got across for me. So, yeah, it's, I, I think a lot of people got to get that mixed up because it was at a Sony event. But Drive Club's not a video game, no. Yeah, no. Uh, that is an extension of one of our oldest podcast yeah. jokes. And I'm sure we have lots of listeners who don't know what you're talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the Google Drive Club PlayStation announcement. And I'm sure you will find it at some point on yep. YouTube. Anyway, it is. It is. St- I watched that like six months ago. It is still fucking hilarious. Wipeout HD will probably be the best racing game on PS4, so we can say that. Yeah. Uh, Lara Croft Go, which is a PS or, uh, iPhone game, yes, is coming to the PS4. Is that already? Is that one of the ones that's just already there? Or? Uh, I think maybe that was one of the ones that they said. Okay. I can't keep like because it was like three or four different things that they said. Like, oh, this yeah. is already out. And that that is probably one of them. I've heard really good things about the Go yes. games, like Hitman Go and Lara Croft Go, and I particularly the Lara Croft one was acclaimed. Yeah. So maybe I'll play it. Because I don't like playing games on my iPhone, but yeah, me neither. Yeah, PS4. Uh, let's see, we have that um, Yakuza Six and the original Yakuza. Which what's the name of that? Uh, Yakuza Kiwami, which it's it's a like remake remaster of the original Yakuza. That okay. is the, both of those are getting English releases. Yes. Which is the, I I keep on thinking that like I should probably play the Yakuza games at some point, and that since they're doing a remake of the first one, that's the one to do. Maybe I'm going to start playing the Yakuza games. I don't know. People say that they're like Shinmu, but like really insane. And I like Shinmu, and I yeah. like insanity. So, which is the one that has Beat Takeshi in it? Um, I think that's the new one. I don't think that's out yet. I think that's okay. seven. Okay. It might be six. I don't know. What was Yakuza Zero? Um, Yakuza Zero is a prequel to Yakuza One. Okay, I can't. Yeah, keep them and then there's like a whole side series that they made of like the Yakuza characters, and it's a spinoff, and they're like in like Shinsengumi stuff of like the end of the, like the Tokugawa era, and that's a whole other thing. And then like I think they made a spinoff of Yakuza Four or maybe Five that's like a zombie thing. Okay, if you go into like Yakuza is one of those video game franchises where when you like Wikipedia one of the Yakuza games and be like, "What's Yakuza Kiwami?" and then you Wikipedia that, and you're like. Five hours later, you have this encyclopedic knowledge of, like, everything that has occurred in, like, the 17 entries of the Yakuza franchise. It's like Metal Gear in that way. You just, like, you, you, you read one synopsis, and you're like, well, where the fuck does this go? And you just, like, keep on reading it. Nice. Well, at least we're getting to, to start from the beginning. Yeah. Yakuza yeah. Kiwami. All right. So let's go ahead and move on. Uh, Danganronpa 
Three yes, you, is coming you pronounced up. it better than the dude on stage. Yes. Good job. Uh, I've really wanted to play these games, and yeah. I never have. They're super acclaimed. I, I know played I'm, the first one. It's really good. Okay, yeah. A lot of people are very excited for that third one. It is coming out stateside. I think they're doing it for both Vita and PS4 because one and two are getting a PS4 remaster. Yes. Um, which I might get that because that sounds good. Yeah, this was the section of the presentation where Gio Corsi, who's a guy at Sony, came up on stage and he was announcing these games. And he brought an actual physical Vita onto the stage with him. And every time he would have an announcement of a game that was coming to PS4 and Vita, he would hold up the Vita and point at it and say, and on the PS Vita. And that was like both sad and really heartening at the same time. Yes. Uh, let's see, Windjammers. You, yes. I didn't. I missed this one actually. What was? What's yeah. So that was at the end of the GeoCourcy segment. They announced that a, uh, I guess not even really a remaster, but just a re- a modern release with online multiplayer of Windjammers, which is a sort of like cult hit competitive one on one multiplayer arcade game from the '90s. That it's basically like kind of like frisbee tennis almost. That it's like it's hard to explain. But it's something that has been a part of a like running in joke on a number of different video game web websites that I think started on Giant Bomb, which I'm, I'm a fan of that site. And it's just this thing of like them like asking for a remake of of Windjammers, and the community has been like tweeting different video game developers, like like one Dave Lang, who's a the the CEO of a of a of Iron Galaxy, which is a company that puts out a bunch of like remakes of games and stuff like that, and has been pestering him. And the, and Geo Corsi straight up name dropped like. And Dave Lang will never believe it. This is what's coming out on the PlayStation 4. And then they show a trailer for fucking Windjammers. And then after the trailer was done, you could hear a fucking pin drop in that audience because nobody knew what that (laughs) game was. It was the most amazing thing. But I was at home and I was laughing my ass off. And and I'm both excited because I want to play that game because I've seen footage of it. And it looks like it's a really exciting, like fun, like intensely competitive one-on-one arcade game that just like... Was had this like really obscure release and it has never been released in any form other than its arcade form and like a home version of the arcade. And so it's like you could never play that game unless you put down like $300 for it. So it's it's kind of awesome that it's getting put out there. It's also the kind of thing you would expect would just be put up on like the PlayStation blog. I still cannot believe they let him put that as the end of his section in this fucking like, like live stream to the world and Sony at like this conference stage. So you know, when the PS4 is as successful as it is, they can go as niche as they want. Yeah. It yeah. really is true. Because if you have 50 million consoles in the wild and a small fraction buy it, that's still a lot of sales. Yeah, like, I feel like since I have been following this stupid in-joke for, like, four or five years at this point, I feel, like, morally obligated to buy this release when it actually comes out. Well, that'll be that'll be a podcast topic at yeah. some point. When Did they say when it's coming out? Uh, I don't know if they did. I'm okay. not sure. I'm, well, maybe this will be our Game of the Year of 2017. Yeah, exactly. Windjammers, it's our 2017, like, 1992 Game of the Year. Indeed. Uh, all right, Nino Kuni 2 Revenant Kingdom. Yes, I, did I get that right? By its Japanese title, Nino Kuni Ni. Yes, I'm. I'm sad that the the pun guy who dubbed Final Fantasy 15 didn't give this the name Nino Tuni. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because that's totally what English prompto would do. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So Nino Kuni 2, another trailer. 
Looks really nice. Yeah. It's, uh, it's nice trailers for that It game. seems like they're going the Final Fantasy route of it being an anthology kind of thing. Like, this doesn't yeah. seem like it's related to Nino Kuni 1, so you could just start here. Uh, the other nice con- confirmation this trailer had was it says at the end, music by Joe Hisaishi. Yeah. And I remember when the first trailer came out, and maybe it's been clarified since then, I just hadn't followed it. That was up in the air, whether he was yeah, going to yeah. score it or not. Um, if you don't know, he's the guy who scores um, the Hayao Miyazaki movies, Beat Takeshi's movies. Great composer. Yeah, fantastic composer. Um, and he scored Nino Kuni 1, and that's a very special video game score. So awesome that he'll be doing another one. Yeah, I never ever got around to playing Nino Kuni 1, because a lot of the reviews were like just middle of the road enough, and it was such a long game that I was like, yeah. I don't want to jump in. Maybe. I, I tried it. It's It was frustrating for me because I think it's... I don't know. It was... So tutorial heavy, right. but also like so JRPG 101, it was very frustrating in the beginning and I never fully got into it. But it looks nice and had good music. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, and then the game with the best title at PSX, Gravity Rush 2, Another Story, The Arc of Time, Raven's Choice, Yes, is going to be DLC for Gravity Rush 2 coming out March 2017. I can't wait. It was the, the trailer's really good. I, I'm excited. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just super excited yeah. for Gravity Rush 2, but then, like... It looks like better DLC than the Gravity Rush 1 DLC, where, like, you're a maid and yeah, you run a... The maid side quest, that was the best part of the whole game. You, no, like, it wasn't. have to go fly around and, like, go find a thing, and then you bring it back to another thing. I did it all. I yeah. platinumed plat- that game and all the DLC just for shits and giggles, I guess. Yeah, me but, too. Yeah, anyway... Uh, yeah, can't wait for Gravity Rush 2, and I love that they we have this DLC coming out, and it has that title. Beautiful. Yes. Beautiful. All right, and that was PSX. I mean, um, God, there's a lot of good stuff coming out. Yeah, so there's a, the, the, a, one other thing that they did also say, another remaster, because uh, this reminded me of this is another one of the things that they said, and you can play a demo of this now, is a remaster of Crap of the Rapper. Oh, right. And then the, I forget what the other two games the studio did, but their other two games, or rhythm games, are also coming out remastered for the PS4, and that's cool. Like yeah. I've, I've never played Craft of the Rapper one, one, but it always seemed like a game I would like. So I'm probably going to pick up that remake when it comes out. Yeah. So are those just the PS2 things they do now on the PS4? Uh, I no, know. I think it's like a full, uh, oh, it full is? Okay. remaster of Craft okay. of the Rapper because I, I suspect that that game is going to have to have something to do, like, like the remake is going to have to do something with the timing of it, because Crap of the Rapper 1 was, I, I believe, was a PS1 game, so, like, that was all on, like, CRT TVs, where, like, input lag is super low, because they're, like, the display lag on the image is super low, because those are, like, way less sophisticated TVs, and everyone's TVs nowadays, you could not play, like, those old PS1 rhythm games, because you are going to miss every single note, so I suspect they're going to have to do something to try to calibrate that a different, like, differently. Well, it's certainly, it's got a good title. Yes. No, I mean, it really was. It was hilarious to me. All the gaming people I follow on Twitter, everyone was excited for something different. Like, yeah. there's so much in here that is, it was just for such a wide audience. Like, what would you say drew your most attention? Uh, I mean, the Gravity Rush 2 and uh, The Last of Us 2 were yeah. the two, like, announcements that I came out of that. Like, in, like, the two trailers I came out of the most excited about. Other than, obviously, like, Windjammers, which, like, shattered the world. That they're finally, like, that, like... Like, the commoners will be able to play Windjammers, but... Yeah, I definitely think that Last of Us 2 trailer, just as a trailer, was superb. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I was just surprised by things. Again, Knack 2 looked good. (laughs) It's so bizarre. I still, I just, I kind of refuse to believe that that game is real. Like, I just can't... No, I know. I just, like, Knack 2. Like, that that would be like if Microsoft made a Brute Force 2 on the original (laughs) Xbox. You know, like, that's the kind of, like original IP exclusive 
console exclusive that we're talking about with NAC 1. Right. Like, the idea that you'd make another one. Like, the history of video game consoles is littered with original IPs that had a shitty first game that then they abandoned and, like, latched on to Halo or so, or, like, Killzone or, like, whatever. Something else that, like, Uncharted that's like, this is, like, what our good foot forward for the, like, this yeah. generation. Uh, there's a reason why the studio that made Killzone is not making Killzone Shadowfall 2. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so anyway... Let's go ahead and move on and talk about a game we're playing right now on the PS4. Yeah. Final Fantasy XV. Final Fantasy XV. Alright, this is certainly one of the biggest games, not just of the year, but kind of ever made. And it has this almost mythical history to it. Yeah. Where, let's just go through it really quick for those who have forgotten. Right. This was announced when you and I were in middle school. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, Long time. Right. It is this game's development is as old as our friendship. It's insane. Yes, it, it predates our podcast by a number of years. <laughs> yes, uh, and it was announced as Final Fantasy Versus Thirteen, and of course announced alongside the game that actually was Final Fantasy Thirteen. Yes, then the Nova Crystallis Fantabulosa, well, fucking whatever. It's some arrangement of those. It's words. Nova Crystallis for sure, and I think the last one starts with F. Uh, I think it's Fabula Nova Crystallis. Oh, so okay. Fabula is first. Fabula is first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was that was going to be it was going to be Final Fantasy thirteen and then a bunch of other games. Um, Final Fantasy Type Zero was also going to be part of that, and then eventually that was changed. So a bunch of these were there. But this and then is... they just decided we're just going to make three Final Fantasy thirteens because that's what everyone was asking for that played Final Fantasy thirteen was two more of these fuckers. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but Final Fantasy versus thirteen, it was kind of out there for a number of years, then it disappeared for a number of years. Came back at E3 2012, something yeah, like that, a, a couple years ago, and they said it's. They even did the like title card at the end where Final Fantasy Versus 13 like dissolved and it became Final Fantasy 15. We learned that during the long development cycle, it was internally rebranded because they said, "Hey, this looks pretty cool, so let's just make it 15." And also, a lot of those games that were going to be connected to 13 were being separated. Um, and this was always they Tetsuya Nomura, the the director of the, or the original director of this, um, who you would know as a big final. He's been with Final Fantasy since seven. Uh, yeah. he, he wasn't like a game director on seven, but that's right. where like he kind of entered the franchise. Yeah, you if you if you his character designs are very notable. And that notable. is a good word to use for them. Yeah, they're they're kind of iconic in all their leather and zippers. Yes, and um, their fucking stupid short leg, long leg pants. Titus, I'm looking at you, asshole. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, he was very influential on Final Fantasy X, and then he made Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2, and now he's working on Kingdom Hearts 3. But anyway, so this was a Tetsuya Nomura game, but even from the beginning he said, it's going to be connected to 13, but more like, not continuity-wise, more like a... So it was always going to be a tenuous connection. So anyway, it became Final Fantasy 15. Tetsuya Nomura is not like the final credited director on it because eventually he left to go work on Kingdom Hearts 3. But clearly, if you've played this, it is a Tetsuya Nomura game. Yes, no, that is and, for sure. For uh, good and worse. Yeah, Hajime Tabata uh, is the guy who kind of took it over the finish line. He was the co-director throughout, and then he was the guy who directed for the last like two years of development. But uh, now, now it's here uh, after a number of delays, even of the game called Final Fantasy 15. It's out. It is sort of an open world game and sort of not. It is a JRPG and it is a Final Fantasy game, but sort of not. Yeah. It is all sorts of things. We could start just about anywhere. Do you have any thoughts on where you want to start? Or do you want me to try uh, to find something? Let's start with what is still uh, 18 hours in to me the best part of the game, which is the fucking title card sequence in this game. It is so good. It is so Good. When I, this is something I need to say, and, and I'll say it a lot. When this game is on in terms of character and story, it is fucking on in a way I have very rarely seen in a game. Yeah. 
And I think you're going to see that more when you get to where I am, too. I hope so. But, like, yeah, that title card sequence, it's... Because you get a couple of little preamble sequences that just kind of set up the story. And then it's Noctis, Ignis, Prompto, and Gladiolus. And they are pushing their car down the road, and they are bickering. And Florence and the Machine singing Stand By Me comes on, and we rise up. Actually, for a couple minutes, it's just playing that while they're pushing and bickering. And then we rise up, and it says Final Fantasy XV. And yeah, you are correct in making that Guardians of the Galaxy comparison. Yeah, it's just something where... it's, It's the thing for this game, like, even when I have some issues with, like... The side quests I have issues with, like the combat can be finicky and weird, and I have issues with like so far like what they've done with the pacing of the story and that kind of stuff. Even with all like the little issues I have with the game, like the the setting and the tone and what they have done to get across this like really bizarre amalgamation of so many different influences and of like the history of Final Fantasy and of like and also of our contemporary world and, and all this stuff and just mushed it together into this weird story about four dudes going on like the world's most bizarre road trip. <laughs> like it's it's Final Fantasy fifteen is like the most chill game I've ever fucking played other than like a Proteus or something you know like there's it's I was gonna I, I don't know if I tweeted this or not it's the most relaxed and relaxing game about fighting giant monsters you will ever play exactly like it's something where the, to me my favorite moments in playing this game are generally like me just like driving down the road and listening to the the soundtrack to Final Fantasy 1 while like like two of my like buddies are bickering in the car and like just sort of like making a U-turn and like and heading to like this new gas station and then getting out and having some jambalaya at the diner like yes. that's kind of the, the the stuff in the game that stands out to most the, the most to me is just sort of like breathing in the setting because the setting is like in the finished game and has been like since the first trailers of Final Fantasy 15 and then through, like, the Kingsglaive movie and Brotherhood and all that stuff, the setting is what draws my attention more than anything else because it is such a bizarre conflagration of all these different strange things that you think should not be able to exist side by side, like robots and magic and diners and giant dinosaur monsters and, like, normal-ass people and, like, like weird fucking, like, like regal, like... The cities and stuff like that and then if you i don't know if you actually get to this point somewhere in the game maybe you could tell me but in like the brotherhood anime series you see that like in the the capital the residential districts are just japan like they are just like modern suburban japan and the homes are just modern suburban japanese homes and it's just like what the fuck is this setting it's so many things that shouldn't fit next to, together but since like it is so many things that shouldn't fit together they kind of fit together perfectly yes um by far, to me, without any even competition, the most interesting open world I've ever been in, in a game. Sure, I, yeah. I just, I love it so much. There is, I have played 30 hours of this game in one week. I realized this the other day. I hit the 24-hour mark on my fifth day of playing. Jeez, yeah. That, I, I, in five days... Of, of like my life I spent a full fifth of that Just playing Final Fantasy XV Yeah that's some That's some fucking Persona 5 ass shit You yes. just did Oh no I literally Sean Every waking moment That I am not doing something Like a, a responsibility I have to do Yeah Like work or something I am playing Final Fantasy XV Yeah I can't quite afford To give this game that treatment Like I already did that With Persona 5 But I, I respect it Oh yeah But anyway like Anyway what I was saying Is I'm 30 hours in And there is not A single location In this game 
Not a town, not a dungeon, not a corner of the open world, not a hill, not a valley, nothing that I have not found beautiful and interesting and distinct. There is no slack, there is no give in how beautiful this world is and how fascinating it is and how constantly it wants to surprise you and throw stuff at you. And yet it all hangs together so perfectly just as a world that is built. You know, you will go from, you know, you start the game in like this very rural deserty area. That's where Sid and Sydney are. And that's where they, you know, have set up shop. It's Hammerhead. Yeah. And you start there and you're thinking, because that's kind of what you see a lot in like the Brotherhood anime. Um, at least in like the, the non-flashback parts of that. And so I was not kind of sure what the larger world was going to be. But you go from Hammerhead and then maybe you go to the Golden Quay area, which is this like beachfront area. And you go down this long pier and it's like this hyper rich person resort. And it's one of the most beautiful things you will ever see is standing on that beach or on that pier and watching the sun go down. Yeah. And, you know, at one point I realized there's this, there's all these big things in the world. Like there's that big meteor that basically has landed. And so there's these big arcs of rock and stuff. And I'm thinking, that's really cool. I bet you never do anything with that, though, because that looks like a skybox kind of thing. Nope, there's a whole dungeon there, and yeah. it's just you go to it. And then, like, later on, you find this mountain of fire, and you think, there's no, that's part of the skybox, right? No, you can go to the top of that, and it's one of the best things I've ever played in a video game. It's, it's the Rock of Ravana. I don't know if you've done I, it. No, I haven't okay. done there. Do it when you have the chance. Okay. It's fantastic. Um, and things like that. And that. No shit, this game has my favorite driving ever, and I never drive. Yeah. I never. Ignis always gets to drive, because one, I think it makes him happy, and two... He likes to feel that he's being responsible, you know? It, he does. And, you know, I just love being in that car and just going anywhere. I try never to fast travel unless I'm sort of doing a, a kind of big quest thing, and I have to... And just, that is one of the biggest pleasures I've ever had in a game, is just sitting in that car and listening to all those great Final Fantasy soundtracks you can find, because goddamn if Final Fantasy as a series as a whole doesn't have just the best fucking music ever. And just looking at the environments, it just drives by, and I just sit and watch. And I, that is a kind of thing that no video game I have ever played has tried to go for. That kind of feeling, that relaxed road yeah. trip kind of thing, where... You know, what this game is about, and I do think the game knows it is about this more than I felt it was at the beginning, is it is about brotherhood. It is about these four guys and their journey and their friendship and their trip, and that is what you are experiencing. It's about them moving through this world and some of both their naiveties and their journey of maturation. And that basic open world process of you get in your car, you drive somewhere, you explore whether you're on foot, chocobo, car, it's all beautiful, it's all fascinating. And then you go back and you do some more, and you know you camp, and you make some food, and you talk with your buddies, and maybe you go fishing or something, and then you get back in the car. I've never enjoyed the moment-to-moment of an open-world game to this degree. Yeah, it is it's definitely something where... Where like what stands out about the game is the the things that like you've never quite seen in a game before of of stuff like like the driving model, which is just like I mean it's it's basically on rails driving. Like yes. it is if you you can either have Ignis drive the car for you or you can drive it yourself, and then also you can just have like fast travel places. Although like the loading screens are so long that even if you want like you might as well just actually drive there because you will be there by the time it would have loaded that area anyways and you get to listen to some tunes even if you didn't want to. But uh, but yeah, like the driving is just like 
at first I was kind of like, oh, that's weird. That's a bit disappointing. Like, I was hoping, like, you know, you could do stupid open world driving shit of, like, ride, like ride driving into other cars and stuff. But then it makes sense of, like, no, like, you're obeying the rules of the road. Like, you are, you are staying in your lane. You are, like, making turns when you can make turns. Like, you're not, like, these characters are not just going to crash into other cars like maniacs because you tell them to. Like, this if, is an open world game with driving where you go the speed limit. Yes. That's amazing on one level, you know? Yeah, at least, luckily, you're in the country, so there are no stop signs, so you don't have to deal with that. But, like, it is, yeah. it is like, on rails driving, it is driving that, that retains, the like, the rules of the road in a way that, like, you are generally taught not to expect. But then it does, luckily, have, once you get chocobos, you do get to have, like, the, okay, like, this is my fast mode of travel where I can just, like, jump over shit and, like, get out into the world and I don't have to run everywhere, because I, that was, like... I think they took maybe just a little bit too long to give you your chocobo because it's like I'm, I got pretty fucking sick of running places at some point in that game. But yeah, like I feel like I got mine pretty early. You can probably get it at different points yeah, depending on when you do it. Well, no, you can like they introduce you. Like it depends on how much side quest stuff you do. Right. Like at what point? Like I was doing too much side quest stuff a little bit early on without like knowing that. Oh, if I just go do this mission, I then unlock the mission where I can go get my chocobo. Which is like just fucking just give me goddamn chocobo, okay? But yeah, like but yeah. So but you, that mission is prompto is so happy. That mission such- is very good. Maybe they could have given it to you a little bit okay, earlier, no, or fine. signposted that that yeah. was that 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 was there a little bit earlier. But but yeah, but it's stuff like that. It is stuff like of of like Noctis's favorite thing is just going and fishing. Like that's really all he wants to do. He doesn't want to be a prince. He doesn't want to fight monsters. He doesn't want to meet these like weird six gods that nobody really talked about before. But now you have to go meet them, I guess. But he just wants to go, and he wants to go fucking fish. And you know what? I kind of want to just go fucking fish too. Like, the fishing is fun, it's relaxing, it's satisfying, and you can just spend a whole in-game day of just getting in your car, going and driving to a fishing spot, getting out, fishing, and then going and camping, and then, like, shooting the shit with your friends, and then looking at Prompto's stupid photos he took, you know? Like, Love it. And it's all that stuff of just, like, being in the world. Like, the setting is so perfect, and, like, though, like the window dressing and little things they put around of the activities and, like... And the characters and, like, the camping, the, the the driving, the fishing, the pictures. Like, all of these are these weird little mechanics that you normally wouldn't see. Or if you did see, like, the fishing, it would be way less emphasized in another game. But here it kind of, like, takes a precedence and takes a, like, something that gives this game a structure that you've never really seen before. And just makes the game feel completely unique. So unique. Just a day in the life of this game to me is so insanely fun and unique and... That prompto photography thing is kind of the thing that ties that element of the game together for me. Yeah. Because, and I actually think all of it, that, that I think the way that each one has a skill where, you know, Noctis fishes and Gladiolus scavenges and Ignis makes the food and yeah. prompto does the, the photography, that alone just as a gameplay mechanic does such a good job of letting those characters live and breathe as part of this world and not just, like, random members of your team. Yeah. Um, but Prompto doing the photos, I I love this, and I love this kind of photo stuff to begin with. I use the share button very liberally on my PS4, and just the fact that it does that at the end of every day, when you go camp or you go to an inn and Prompto has his photos and they make jokes about them and they talk about them, and you'll... I just love, like, the actor who does Noctis has this so perfectly where he's like, hey, that's pretty good. Yeah. And he's, like, really interested in it, and Prompto is so happy, and they do these crazy selfies and stuff, and I've been posting these on Twitter because I get so much joy from it, and they even let you in the game just tweet your photos. Yeah. 
It's great. And in fact, my biggest complaint with this game, and I am not joking when I say this, okay. is that you can only save 150 photos. Yeah, like I've seen they, they put that like of how many you have out of 150 up there, and I see that number slowly hitting 150. I'm like, eh, I don't want it. I, like, I, that's going to break my heart. Like, which, which of these fucking photos of like a completely black screen except for like one little tiny blue spot that Bropto took that I saved because <laughs> I thought it was funny that like the, the screenshot thing in the game kind of glitched out. Like, I don't want to delete any of those. I want to keep them all. No, but it, yeah, I, I, I didn't even realize that was there until I hit 150, and then I had to go back and delete some. But, like, just having that log of your whole trip based on photos Prompto took is so wonderful, and it, it kind of embodies to me this both earnest and goofy sense this game has that I think uh, tightens into something more uh, deep and emotional than just that uh, down the home stretch. Um, I'm trying to tread lightly, I guess, yeah. but um, that is something I love so much about this game. It's why that opening sequence works so well, because that title sc- screen with Stand By Me and everything, it is 100% cheesy and tongue-in-cheek, and it is also 100% earnest. Yeah. Like, it is, that is what that game is about on both sides of that coin, and I love that about it. Yeah, and it's it just, it's something, it, it just declares very early on that, like, this game is not necessarily about like the big world ending shit like that will be a part of it at some point but like it is it is about these characters and it is about like everyday life and it's something that here maybe we can kind of transition a little bit into talking about the voice acting and maybe one of the reasons why I don't like the the tack that the localization took team took with the english stuff is that a big part of this game to me is that the people in this world are just people. Yes. Like, with, like, a handful of, of exceptions of some of the villains are, like, eccentric and weird on purpose to sort of, like, stand out. And, and like, maybe, like, the main cast is, like, a little bit extra quirky than just normal people. But even then, like, they are way more normal than your normal cast of, or your usual cast, let's say, of Final Fantasy characters. Uh like, the random people you run into this world of, like, Sydney, of Sid, of just, like, the, the people running diners and stuff, like, like the random people giving you side quests, like, they are just normal fucking people that, that in Japanese, just speak in, like, normal voices. Like, they don't have weird accents. They, they're not, like, trying to put anything on. Like, they are talking in a totally normal, casual, contemporary Japanese. They are not walking around talking in, like, like, fancy high speak or something, again, other than a handful of the villain characters. Like, the people of the world are just people, and they dress like normal people. And, and, and they have cell phones, and they have cars, and they have day jobs, and it's like... And they just live in this normal, what you could recognize normally as just a contemporary society... They just that contemporary society also happens to exist alongside magic and demons and giant monsters. Yes, and I actually think it's a super important thematic part of this game yeah. is that they are normal people, and it's also thematically important that the villains are not, and that the empire, you know, this there is this gap between this empire that you actually don't see a lot of and this kingdom that you don't see a lot of, but you're out in the country with just the people, and yeah. that's important. And it almost feels like this is like this. It is a coming of age story. It's Noctis. You know, thrust into this kind of liminal space where he's the king, but before he can actually reclaim his throne, yeah, he's a king without a country. He's king without a country, and he's going around helping people, and he's learning about his kingdom. And that's not even something I think they they put in like dialogue, but I do think it's kind of thematized as an idea in the game of like this is something he has to do, and actually one of the running threads that comes from the you find it right at the beginning when you first meet Sid, but it kind of comes back a little bit more and more is that Sid knew King Regis. And it sounds like King Regis did something very similar when he was young and yeah. had these friends and Sid was one of them. Yeah, Sid and, has that like picture of yep. him and Regis and two other people that like looks like 
oh, like, that's like, if, like, I found a picture of my dad and his buddies from, like, the 60s or something, yeah. you know? And this is something I'm going to get into, but the whole open world conceit, and I, it, I do think it's flawed, and we're going to talk about some of the problems, um, although, again, none of these are, are game-breaking for me in any way, um, while it has problems, I think the overall thematic idea of the open world and how it functions in this game is as this kind of halcyon days kind of thing of Noctis and his friends getting to be friends and getting to go out there and learn about this world while darkness literally intrudes because one of the story elements is that night is getting longer and that actually happens in the game as you play is that the night section start as a four-hour block and get longer and longer and as that's intruding, it's kind of this how do you let go of that part of yourself and that part of your life? And I think when the game starts really zeroing in on that, the emotional impact of this thing is fucking immense to me. And part of that is because of how they set up the open world stuff. Even the inanity of a lot of the sub, sub or side quests, which we'll talk about, which I generally like just because they let me go explore the world and have fun with it. Um, I, I think you could even make the argument that there's a reason a lot of those are as mundane as they are when you look at the overall scope of this thing. But I might be getting ahead of ourselves. So. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, what I was going to say though is that the the thing with the English localization, and it's something that like even if you're playing in Japanese dialogue, unless you have the English subtitles turned off, you cannot escape it. Is right. that like what the English localization has decided to do? Which is something that a lot of like English localizations do, and sometimes I think it is a smart choice. Sometimes it can actually make something a little bit better than maybe it was if it had a particularly bland Japanese script. But a lot of times you run into this situation where a localization team decides to sort of like. Uh, kind of spice things up let's say and like make things a bit more cartoonish and sometimes that's fine and sometimes that's the way that it was in the original Japanese here like that is the exact opposite of what they're doing in like a way that feels so it's like immediately and obviously intentional is to draw this clear line between like Noctis and his friends and like Noctis speaking in what is like of like almost like stereotypical contemporary Japanese whiny teenager talk and then like his dad that was like the king that you see at the very beginning who's talking like very like formal like old like kind of arcane Japanese and like that it's so important and then like in the, the English version like I don't know what the actual voice acting sounds like but when you see Sydney for the first time she starts starts talking and then you look at the subtitles and it is like it is the most insanely overdone, like, approximation of what a southern accent in English looks like. It's like... And it's a weird thing because when they... When that sometimes happens in dubs, that's because they're doing, like, a Kansai accent or something. Yeah, like, that is one of the things that, like, Persona 4 Arena, for instance, has a character in it, uh, Labrys, that uh, she has... Uh, a Kansai accent in Japanese and so they gave her I think like a Boston accent in the English dub because it's like an important part of the characters that she has a different accent than the other characters in Japanese she is speaking in totally normal Japanese the one thing she does is she calls her granddad Gigi which is a slightly like countrified way of referring to one's grandfather it is like the most minor thing that, like, well, you would be like Papa is what they do in the subtitles. If it was just that and all the rest was normal, that is, like, what she is saying. I mean, here's what you, we could say. Sid and Sydney sound like they are rural people, but they don't sound like country bubkins. Yeah, something. exactly. They don't because sound like, rural... like weird, crazy, like, parody rednecks, you know? Yeah, because most rural people talk mostly normally. They yeah. might have some little things that are different. And I do think the writing in Japanese is very good at those nuances. Yeah. But the English version, yes, decided... We're going to blow those nuances way up 
And that's just going to become the text. Yeah, or, yeah, and so, like, you know, Sydney is one of those that there's a big one. Uh, the dude who keeps on sending you on this fucking stupid gym subquest. <laughs> that dude, yeah. like, he, like, I you couldn't know. quite... I couldn't quite place what accent they were going for until I saw people on Twitter talking about it, and apparently he's, like, some weird, like, fucking, uh, like, Boston gangster or something like that. It's like, like, that, like, that guy is annoying in Japanese on purpose, yes. but he doesn't have a weird accent, and also, like, Ignis in, in the English the subtitles has, like, like, in Japanese he's a little bit stiff, he's stiffer than other people, he speaks in a more polite way. But he, but like in the English subtitles, like he talks completely differently than everybody else, and it's just something where it's like all of these characters you've kind of just like taken the little tiny eccentricities they had and like ballooned them out to be like cartoonish in a way that's like antithetical to what I feel like the game wants you to feel these characters are. Because I think the character work in this game is so above and beyond most Final Fantasy games. Sure, yeah. And it is too bad that I think that might be significantly lost for a lot of people playing this in English. Yeah, because in, in, like, particularly, I think, like, Noctis is the one who, to me, like... And it's, it's, again, it's one of the things that, like, when I saw the first episode of the Brotherhood anime, like, kind of pushed me over the edge into really wanting to play Final Fantasy XV instead of being curious about it, is that Noctis rides this, like, really thin line between being the aloof, stoic, sort of, like, bratty, annoying main character of, of, like, Squall from Final Fantasy VIII that is, like, just the most fucking, like, broody piece of shit that you can't stand. And that game wants you to think that he's being really cool. And, like, Final Fantasy XV, like, Noctis wants everyone to think that he is, like, Squall. That, like, he wants everyone to see him as being this, like, broody, dark, like, tortured prince. But, like, he's, like, this weird kind of nerdy dude who really likes fishing and he's, like, socially awkward and he's this kind of whiny brat. Like, then that's, I feel like, that the, his performance in Japanese is so good at getting that across and, like, walking that line and making you constantly realize, like, oh, he's, like, 17 years old. Like, yes. of course he can't handle this shit. Like, of course he's being an annoying shit because, because he's a prince. Like, and they, they get that across, that he's supposed to be a whiny teenager because he's in the process of growing up. I feel like a lot of the English subtitles have not, like, really gotten that across. And there is so much nuance to what he is because he has that brooding side... But so many of those moments when you're out in the world, why they are magical is because Noctis lets his guard down and he's just nerding out like, oh my god, we get to fish. Yeah. Or he's like, Prompto, that's a great photo or something. Or like, Prompto will ask to take a photo and Noctis will be like, sure, where do you want to take a photo? And like, he'll kind of like yeah. come out of his shell a little bit and you realize he's mostly just shy what yeah. it is. And, and then like, every once in a while he'll try to like, like pull his like kind of broody shit and then like one of the other guys like Gladio will like kind of cut his legs out from under him. Like, yeah. stop that. Like, come on. Yeah, like, no. take your fucking jacket off, you poser. Yeah, and especially the deeper the game goes, I think Noctis is easily the best protagonist of the 3D Final Fantasy games. I, I don't even think it's a contest. I think... Yeah, I mean, I w it wouldn't be much of a contest by the ones I've played either. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think... Uh, you know, I like Cloud, for instance, but I think he's... He's kind of a non-character to so, Well, and I yeah. think that's intentional in Final Fantasy VII is that he is not the most interesting character in that world. Yeah. This game is about Noctis... But it's about Noctis as refracted through all these other lenses, too. And so I think what makes Noctis so great is this also has the best supporting cast of, of a lot of these games. I don't know if I would go quite that far on that statement, because I think you look at 7, 10, some of those have great supporting casts. But um, certainly uh, there are characters more interesting than Lightning in Final Fantasy XIII. Sure, um, yeah, you can say but that. Anyway, uh, yeah, so, but I do think that core, that the boy band of, yes. of you know, Ignis, Gladiolus, and Prompto and Noctis, those four just work as a character set so well and feel like they are so 
clearly envisioned as what those people need to be and then they execute on that in the world and as characters so well throughout in those dynamics of gladiolus being like the big brother who like is able to cut noctis on his shit and he can talk to the king as you know almost like a a brother or an uncle or something and ignis is his retainer he's the guy who kind of takes care of noctis but he also is very smart in this guide and prompto's his best friend yeah. And they have that relationship. And there are all these like you know optional scenes you can run into with the three of them and those relationships that are so beautiful. And it's something I loved in um, that anime, Brotherhood Final Fantasy XV, which we need to talk about the ancillary, ancillary stuff in a yeah, minute. We do, yeah. um, but you know, I think it comes across so well here. And it comes across whether you're doing mainline narrative stuff or whether you're just out in the world. And I think that's kind of the secret sauce to what makes this game work is that there are disparate things going on here that don't quite work, but those characters tie this thing together. Yeah. So let's talk about the ancillary stuff for a second. Okay. Because I did want to get into this. Yeah. So I have talked on the podcast about Kingsglaive and the anime. Did you catch up on those? Yeah. Then I am, I am so glad I decided to watch King because it was something where like it was the night before Final Fantasy 15 came out and like the day before I had watched all the Brotherhood stuff on Crunchyroll because you can get through really fast. And I really like that a lot in particular I love, I love the, I mean, I love everything about the Prompto one. I think his backstory is really interesting. I just love getting the peek into, like, his house and his neighborhood and the elementary school. And it's just like, you could take any of these screenshots and, like, nobody would think this is from a Final Fantasy thing. Like, this is the most, like, stock fucking standard anime, like, contemporary anime character house, neighborhood, and elementary school. You could fucking find, I could show you two dozen different pictures from different shows I've seen that are these exact same environments and I like it was again it's one of those things that, like the setting in this game is fucking nuts and it's amazing but yeah so I, I watched all the Brotherhood stuff and then the next night like it was getting kind of late and then I realized like oh shit I haven't watched Kingsglaive yet yeah, and I was thinking like oh maybe I can put it off and it's like ah oh, and I looked and it was like ah oh, it's like fucking four bucks or something on PSN I'll just okay I'll just watch it and then go to bed and I watch it and it's like you know it's not like the most amazing movie in the world, but if you have an interest in Final Fantasy XV, it's a lot of fun. It's a very entertaining movie. Those visuals, man. Yeah, it, it looks very, very good. And and the, the celebrity voices are like surprisingly really good. In a way the that, the like, dub of that movie is much better than the dub of the game. Yeah, this is the way this is just kind of like, huh, I didn't like... I wouldn't think that Sean Bean would bring this much to this role. Like He it, really brought it. Yeah, he's like, he does a really good job. But yeah, so like, and I, I like Kingsglaive a lot. And if you are playing Final Fantasy XV, for the f- fucking love of God, go play Kingsglaive because you need to see because you need to watch it. And it's something that's like we need to talk about because it is a. And I think Brotherhood is not quite as one hundred percent. You need to watch it, but you really should watch it because I, I, a lot of character work gets done in Brotherhood that is not done in the main game. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. If, if, you, if you only have two hours, watch Kingsglaive. Yeah, because you need that for, like, plot stuff. Yes. Like, I do not know how some people would understand. Like, I kind of don't even really understand what's going on in the plot of this game right now. I feel like I would have no idea if I didn't watch Kingsglaive. Yeah, and it, it comes together, and I, I think you'll get it, and I, I get it at this point. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, the basics of the lore of this world is done in Kingsglaive. It yeah. is completely elided in the game, and... Yeah, I think Kingsglaive is essential, and I would also call Brotherhood essential, because it's only an hour total. And I think... And I'm going back and forth on whether or not I think that's a bad thing in the end. I think it's a, it is definitely a bad thing, okay. because there are people who are playing this game that don't yeah. even know those things exist. It's like Final Fantasy XV should stand on its own. It should, yeah. Like, it's definitely a bad thing, but like... 
Like, but if you do watch Brotherhood and Kingsclave, like, it does fill out things in such a way that, like, you will like these characters before you're playing Final Fantasy XV, and you will like the world before you start playing Final Fantasy XV, and you will understand it, and it's like, it is a much more enriched experience that way, so it's like, it's not to say, like, like the game is completely horrible without that stuff, or that it's like, you shouldn't play the game, but, like, you should know going into it, like, watch that shit beforehand, because, it's, like, this game does not stand on its own, at least as much as I've played it so far, in any way. Like, I would not recommend someone play it if they had not seen that shit yet. It's tough to know what to say about it, yeah, because I think it's it reminds me more of almost certain games of my youth where they felt more like a multimedia experience, and there were books and things like that yeah. where you felt like you had to kind of go into this other world to fully grasp it of course that comes from a time when games couldn't fully narrativize themselves maybe in the same way obviously um so it is we you know and i think the essentials of the lore that are given to you in kingsglaive they could do in a five minute cutscene at the beginning if they wanted to and i i i wonder if that was in the game at some point and then they thought we made kingsglaive why do we need it yeah because it's such a bizarre thing when they like because Basically, Kingsglaive, uh, if you didn't listen to, to Johnson's, uh, when he talked about it on the podcast or you don't remember, is basically the, the telling of the story of the fall of Noctis' kingdom, or the, the, his father's kingdom, I guess, technically, and, and of the evil emperor, or empire Nilfheim sort of taking over the, the, crown, the, city. the crown city of Insomnia. And it's like, it's the telling of all those events. And that happens like one to two hours into the game in Final Fantasy XV. And when that happens in Final Fantasy XV, the way they handled that is that they basically like cut together like two minutes of clips from Kingsglaive of the, the climax of that movie where the city falls. And then that's it. And then like, and then Noctis hears about it. And it's, and it's something where I almost feel like it would have been better if they hadn't even shown any of that stuff. And it was just Noctis waking up and then, like, reading it in the newspaper. Well, and here's the thing. I don't know if you read this. Those cutscenes from Kingsglaive were added in the day one patch. They oh. were not part of the game that journalists played. And they were not... They're not on the disc. They were not an original part of the game. Huh. So they added those very last minute. And I agree. I think... It would be better because I actually see the logic of that standing separate, and you're just from Noctis's narrow. Yeah, like I can kind of see that, but then you like, yeah, you showing like this weird truncated vision of it. It's like, like I saw Kingsglaive, so I know what's going on. But if you didn't watch that movie, I imagine you would look at that and it's like, what the fuck is that giant like monster? Like, what am I looking at? And then like. Do you just have to like put the pieces together? Like, oh, okay, I guess that was the fall of that capital. Why did they show that to me that way? Like, it's so. It's so, it's such as just a bizarre presentation of it. It is. Like, I, I kind of wish you could choose to turn that off or something, like if I were ever going to yeah. play the game again. Um, it, it's a really tough thing for me to think about because obviously I don't have the perspective of someone who didn't see yeah. Kingsglaive and stuff. And I really, really love the lore of this world and the larger story being told. And I love how it's all come together, even if there is some obvious annoyance of the way it has to come together is you have to watch the anime, the movie, and then play the game. And that's obviously not ideal. I'm not yeah. going to claim that's ideal. But I do kind of love the richness of it. And again, it's an, at some point, it's like a cr- fault of ambition at some point. Because it's this thing that's so big, it's spilling outside the bounds of the game. And they didn't clearly know how they were going to present all of it. And I do think it's a tough thing. Because there are parts of this that I don't know how you tell them, if not in something like Kingsglaive. Like the entire subplot with where Luna Freya is... And why she is where she is. You learn that in Kingsglaive. Yeah. And because Noctis doesn't know it, you don't know it in the game. But I think it does make sense for the player to have some of that knowledge. Yeah, but like it is also something where I feel like, you know, and obviously like you are way farther in the game than I am. But I like where I am right now, I feel like 
the like the main plot stuff in this game has a very serious pacing issue. It does, and, and like a big part of that is that they rely way too heavily on Brotherhood and Kingslave to do a lot of the narrative heavy lifting of the game, and it's like. I think the pacing of this game would be a lot better if it had more exposition in it, which is not something I would normally say. It's sure as shit not something I would normally say about a JRPG, but this is an instance where it's like there's almost no exposition and there's like and there's something very useful about like even if I know what it is, like there's a sense of pacing that that introductory phase of a story lends to something of like just doing the basic narrative work of like properly introducing each of these characters and like properly introducing this setting. And it doesn't have to be a fucking two hour cutscene. Like there are clever ways to do that. Plenty of games do that. Like older Final Fantasies do that. There's no reason why you need to rely on an anime series and a, like an animated film to, to do that for you. And I think the game would be stronger. Even like having already seen those movies. The game would be stronger. If they incorporated versions of that stuff. Into the story that made it make sense. Because like again right now. Even I having seen that stuff. There's shit that's going on. Of like me going around and fucking talking to all these like six gods and stuff. That like I feel like that was not properly really introduced or discussed. Like I feel like there's like important establishing narrative work that like they just have not done that that hurts the pacing of the game. I completely agree and I think the further you get it smooths out and I think they make some smart choices later on and there are certainly things that the that reflect back and you kind of start to piece things together. But I it yeah, and I agree with all that. It's 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 this game is another entry in the long line of how the fuck do we tell stories in open world games? Yeah, which really the only game that's ever nailed it is The Witcher Three. Yeah, um, and you know when I talk about best open world games, to me it's it's this and Witcher Three for me just on that level of this is like I love exploring this game so much, but Witcher Three is the one that figured out how to actually tell a story in that kind of setting completely, yeah. um, which I think is still a very unique accomplishment, and I think this is a good example in that. Um, but I think the specific thing they're they're going for that doesn't work, and I wish they would have reworked it, is I do think they're trying to do the we're going to just keep it from Noctis's perspective thing. And that means Noctis is going to know things you don't know. But that's kind of the downfall of it, because you are Noctis. You should know what he knows, even if that means we have to do exposition that might be unnatural in the moment. Because the game just stays in the present. Yeah. And Noctis will say stuff that, like, okay, he clearly learned that growing up, but can someone explain this to me? Like, yeah. Could there could like maybe Prompto doesn't know maybe Prompto yeah could like ask, Prompto like, doesn't know shit obviously he, he's yeah. not some royal dude he's just some random yeah. the fucking guy who grew up on the streets right so like the whole six gods thing and it does start to make sense later on once you learn more about yeah because I just like finished all the stuff with like the Thunder dude so like Titan you, no Titan like Titan is the first one okay. and then you do Raijin or whatever like right. his, his uh, English name is like that was the second one I did that okay cool so yeah I mean. Um, certainly once you get to more of the stuff where Luna is part of the game, Luna Freya, yeah. because she's the oracle who is the person who communes with the gods, and that's which, this whole thing. Which I only learned that from a fucking tool tip during a load screen. It was, like, very lucky that I happened to fast travel, and I happened to see that load screen load tip, so I was, cause I was like, oh, okay. Like, because they keep on saying oracle, and it's like they never quite established what that really meant, and they never said before I needed to go meet all these fuckers that there were six gods, and that that was a thing. That, that that has some connection with the king. Like, that's, this game has a weird storytelling, like, issue at the beginning, whether or not, like, it fixes or not, but... No, it does, and yeah. I think it's... I'm trying to explain that, trying to figure out the best way to explain this. I think the game and the people who made it and the world of the game knows the story. I think all sure. of that is in there. And, that, and I say that because I think there are Final Fantasy games where they clearly don't. I don't I, think yeah. anyone 
can explain the difference between Falsy and Lassie and Pulse and Cocoon in Final Fantasy XIII because I never figured it out. I don't think anyone figured it out. I don't think anyone making the game figured it out. It's just bullshit. I don't think that about anything in Final Fantasy XV. Whether it's explained well or not is a different issue. So because it has that foundation, I put up with it more. Like, if it didn't have that foundation and did that, which is what Final Fantasy XIII did. Like, this is still way more clear on things than Final Fantasy XIII, which has hours of cutscenes. So you can go too far in the opposite direction and still not get it right. Yeah. Um, But anyway, uh, so that's why I kind of put up with it and engage with it, is I do have this sense consistently that the world exists as a world, whether or not we're always getting it. And that is kind of step one in any kind of lore-based storytelling. But I do think there is that second step of clearly conveying it to the reader, to the player, um, that has some hitches, clearly. Yeah. So. I think another sort of issue with the game in that vein is that this is a problem that, like, most video games have, certainly most open-world games have. And, like, generally I kind of, like, ignore it because it's not that big a deal. Because I think it's just like, it's just one of those issues with like player agency and stuff. But this is one where I do feel like they could have done something with the main story to design around this. Is that it's that age old open world problem of like the story is very urgent and like you're like, oh, the kingdom just fucking fell and like I've lost my like only family in this world and my like fiance is God knows where and I think she might be dead and it's just me and my three buddies and our cool ass car and like this like sexy trucker lady and that's all I've got left in the world to me. I guess I'm going to go like help this dude get his tomatoes. Like you know, no, it like, is. A, I don't it, it's talk like about that. yeah, it's something where it's just like. And the frustrating thing about it is that I honestly do just want to go get that dude's fucking tomatoes for him because I like exploring this world. I like driving. I like just doing like the the basic existence in this world is so satisfying. And I feel like it's another one of those pacing issues of like. You could have had a solid, like, ten hours at the beginning of this game before, like, shit really kicked off. That you could have spent doing some of that, like, very basic character establishment work of maybe working in, in clever ways through, like, side stories. What Prompto's relationship to Noctis was without necessarily having to just, like, show the Brotherhood episode or something. And then, and you could have, like, established some of, like, the political situation between uh, Lucis and the Niflheim Emperor, Empire and all that stuff. And it's And I would have... And I mean, that's one of the reasons why I didn't fucking get the Chocobo mission until I played like three or four hours of the game is because I was doing all the side quests in the first area because I just liked being in this world. Yeah. And I was kind of dreading that moment of like, oh, like it's going to railroad me at some point into the main plot. And it's a weird thing because I am 30 hours in and I, if I wanted to, I could have finished this game 10 hours ago in sure, terms yeah. of finishing the main story. The yeah, actual, like, probably me too. Like, I have done so much side quest stuff. Yeah. The actual, like, main plot quest line is not short. Like, it's not like it's cut short or anything. But it is pretty direct and to the point in terms of it's not a lot of fluff and filler and stuff. You kind of just get down to it. And there's even a point where you have to make yourself slow down and just smell the roses or else you're going to not fully enjoy the open world portion of this game because there's a lot of urgency and things that are going on and yeah that's an issue and and i'll say it now um i don't think this counts as a spoiler because people have talked to the the director of this game has said it in interviews that the kind of structure of this game is that there's sort of the open world portion where you are in luchis which is noctis's kingdom so you're in the larger kingdom the actual crown city of insomnia is what fell but you're kind of you don't have a home you're out there you're doing this stuff and you have sort of this main quest line which the basic thrust of is you have to get to Altissia which is where you were going to meet Lunafreya 
And then that got sidetracked because of everything that happened, but you kind of want to try to get back to that point. But once you go to Altissia, the game becomes much more linear, and it winds up being kind of this travel throughout the larger world. So Luchus is the open world, but then there is this second half of the game, and it's not really an even half because you can't play it in the same way where you're doing a bunch of side quests and stuff, where the game is is a more linear progression of things. Yeah, So so I think where I am is literally like just about to jump into that. There's a couple more steps, but oh, yes, okay. you're, you're close. Yeah. Um, if you you haven't gone and talked to Sydney yet, you're saying, about it? Or... Oh, well, like, I've, like the oh, thing Iris, I Iris. have next to do is to go get, like, talk to Iris, go to a harbor, get on a boat, and leave on that okay. boat. Okay, you have a couple more things to do, okay. but you're very close. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, what was I going to say? So, yeah. I mean, really what I, I have to do is go get this guy some more tomatoes, because he asked me yes. for some more tomatoes, oh, and yeah. I don't know if that's an infinite quest chain or not. I'm still debating in my head whether or not that's just going to go on forever. And this dude just constantly needs more tomatoes. There are a lot of quest chains where I'm not sure if they're infinite yeah. or not. Anyway. Um, this is another problem we'll talk about. Yeah. So, anywho. Um, yeah, so it does tighten at one point where the story really kicks in and you are not on rails or... I don't want to say that, but you are doing the story until the end. And that's, yeah, where that's you're right. not going around and like going to the Chocobo farm and like getting like this hunting side quest and going over here and yes. talking to Jim Dude and going over yeah. like yeah. And it's a really unique thing. I, I cannot think of another open world game that starts open world and then at one point says, No, the open world is closed, you have shit to do, let's go do this shit. And it's not literally closed, you can go back and I as I understand it, when you beat the game you can go back, but like you don't want. To, it's a really weird thing where you can technically go revisit if you have to do anything. I haven't done it because it would feel really bizarre. That's not what the story is. You're not going back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of the overall structure, and I think it's a really smart and clever structure that has some problems in terms of its realization. I mean, it sounds like it's a great idea for a structure. They just need to, to adjust where and when it, and how it happens. Yes. Well, of like if you had that open world stuff when things were way more laid back and that was a much longer stretch of the game, like that would make a lot of sense to or, me. And then when like things start getting really dire, it like kind of mainlines you. Sure, absolutely. I, I think there's a couple things that needed to happen during the what I'm going to call the open world segment of the game. Which is chapters one through nine ish or something. Okay. So uh, during the open world segment, I think one, yes, it needed to be longer before the, 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 the insomnia fell. I think that just needed to be something where you're out and doing the road trip more. It's a tough thing where you'd have to figure out, well, how do we stop them from getting where they need to go? But, you know, you can do that. You can figure it out. Sure, and then yeah. I think I like the idea of you're out in Luchus kind of lost for a while after the fall of the kingdom. And I think you could do some things in the in just as it's set up to make it narrativized a little clearer so there isn't that same kind of dissonance between when I'm just out questing, but in the back of my mind it's like, I've got to save the world. You know, yeah. there's this kind of thing. Uh, I do think there are ways you could kind of tie those together. And there are ways they wind up, if you go follow certain quest chains long enough, they do tie together because like some of the royal weapons you get... You get because someone sent you somewhere and you're like, oh shit, there's a royal tomb here, I'm going to run this dungeon. Okay. So there's certain things that like the discovery of it is good, but I think all you need to do on, and it's not, I shouldn't say all you need to do, this is clearly a tough thing to figure out how to do, um, but I think you could have in the narrative, in the dialogue, in the actual text of the game, something about, you know, we need to explore and we need to learn things about this world if we're going to save it. Just have that be a little clearer. Because I do think that's what's going on and what they're trying to do is we have to get this done, we have to find these weapons, you know, we have to do this and this. But I think you could 
write that in a way that feels a little more um, true to the situation. And it's, again, this is not a new problem for open world games. Yeah. But this one just aims so high and does its open world so well. But then the actual And I think main... it's also, it's like, it's specific goals with the open world that designs of like the road trip thing. Yeah. Is like... Like, like the sensation through the gameplay mechanics and everything of the road trip is so strong and effective and it's the most alluring part of the game to me. But, like, the actual section of the story where it makes sense for them to be on the road trip is, like, you could end that in, like, 30 minutes if you really mainlined it. And, yes. like, that's that's an issue. Like, I wish that that, like, those two, like, ideals kind of gelled together for longer in the game. Because it's, like, it's at a point where, like, I want to go do more fishing and do the fun fishing stuff, but, like... I cannot possibly justify in my mind why Noctis would be going and doing that right now with all the shit that's going on. It is a tough thing, and, and I kind of went back and forth on how much I could block that out. And I wound up hitting a turning point that I'll talk about more when we do probably a spoiler chat or something, where I spent most of Saturday doing open world like questing stuff before I had the, the very definite, like, you're going to leave. Uh, and, and exit the open world part of the game. And I knew that was coming. So I just kind of did the things I wanted to do and go around and do those things. And it wound up becoming narrativized for me as where I could see Noctis doing that is this kind of trouble letting go. And this thing of like that, that Halcyon Days idea, which I do think is there and could be thematized more, but I do think is part of the subtext of being with your bros on the road. and but On it the has road. To, on the road, but it has to end at some point. And I think one of the beautiful things about these, the linear part of the game is I do think it flashes back on that and thematizes that in a way the open world part should have done maybe a little more of. But that idea of you're going to be saying goodbye and you have this chance to do these things and you kind of want to hold on to it, but then you keep feeling this pull and eventually no matter how many quests you have on the map, you're going to just have to, to cut bait and you're like, I'm never going to do all this right now. And... I think that's an interesting idea. And I think once you move into that linear part, so much of the emotional strength of this, the second half of this game to me comes from, I've said goodbye, I'm not going back, and I'm playing an, a technically what was an open world game, and I'm no longer in that world. I'm in different places. And that is such a weird, different thing that I have literally never seen a game do. Like, imagine if at the end of Grand Theft Auto 4, Nico got deported, and he's back in Russia, and or whatever the fake country was. Uh, I think he was from Serbia. Serbia? Just, which okay. is a real country, not one of those fake countries. I just remembered it being a fake one in that game. No. Oh, okay. Like for all, the only thing that's fake in Grand Theft Auto World is, like, the state names and city names. Everything okay. else is... It's still the United States. It's still Serbia. Okay. Racist. Anyway, that's not me being racist. I didn't remember he was sure from Serbia. Is, yeah, I, sure, sure you're not racist. That, Serbia is a fake country. The, the accent sure shit isn't real in that game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. <laughs> anyway, but like, you know, what if he got deported back to Serbia and now yeah. you're in Serbia and you have to like deal with that? That would actually be a really interesting way to end that game. But um, yeah, so the way that kind of works, I, I wound up, it wound up coming together for me in a way where I made peace with it. While still feeling like, okay, what I went through with the game, I feel like they could have put into the subtext and the text of the game a little more directly. And I think that would have helped because I think it's there and I don't want to deny it's there because I felt that playing the game. But they could have probably done more to, to, to clearly let that be the case from moment one to when you leave the open world. Yeah. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, sure. Like, okay. obviously, I'll have to see for myself, like, whether or not I have that experience when I, get, when I go further because it is something where, because it is, like, again, I hate to bring up that kind of complaint because it is something that is levied against games in a way that I feel like is, it's kind of like something of, like, people, like, complaining about the combat in Uncharted or something. It's, like, it's something where a lot of times I feel like that complaint can get pedantic because 
it's like it is what it is like you're kind of criticizing the game for existing in the genre that it's existing in this one very specifically i think is feels different to me because of its aspirations and like the road trippiness of it and like it doesn't like that i think calls for a different kind of approach whereas like most open world games don't have that element to it at all no and i i do agree with that i mean i definitely feel that where the best thing about the game is that relaxed element, and then there are parts that, you know, kind of take that away from you or make you go through it faster, and I think there is this constant push and pull, and all I'm saying is I think, I do think the designers were aware of that, and I just don't think it made it into the writing fully, um, because I do think there's some ideas there that are very interesting of having this open world where you have this relaxed system and all that, but you're being told that's not your main goal here. I think that's actually a really interesting thing to do in a video game. Of sure. saying, here's the world, here it is, but your specific goal is not to just go spend all your time in it and explore it all. I think it's a really fascinating idea. And I don't think it completely works on that in terms of narrativizing and thematizing it, but it's, it's fascinating to me. Okay. That's all I'm saying. So, you know, like... You know, I look forward to when I'm done with the game going back and just questing and being totally relaxed. And I think that's what a lot of that stuff is probably really there for. And maybe it should just be closed off until you finish the game to make it... That's another thing I think they could have done is yeah. some of that side quest stuff could just be closed off. Because I've already gotten some stuff that, like, it says level 60. And it's like, I'm not going to be level 60 until I beat this game. Like, just the right, way yeah. this goes. So it's like, why would you give that to me now and allow that to be here when that's clearly post-game content? You know, when you're kind of free from any narrative restraints, right? Yeah, so it's a it's a weird thing that happens with it. Yeah, my my concern for like this is like a, a personal thing. Although I, th- I think other people have this uh, element as well, is that like you know I hear people talk about it. It's like oh like you know you can just go finish the main quest and then you go back into the open world and like and then finish all your side stuff there. It's like that has never worked for me in any game I have ever played. I have never been able to be like. Oh, okay, I finished the main story. Now I'll go back and I'll collect all the feathers and I'll do the side quest with this dude and all that shit. It's like, I will tell myself that's what I'm going to do. And then I finish the main quest. And I'm like, okay, I'm done. Like, no, it's because, hard for because me without the pressure of the main quest on there, it's like all the significance and the meaning behind side quest content just like evaporates for me. It's like a weird psychological thing. I'm curious to see if that's going to happen with this game or not. I'm it sure sounds you- like they're kind of expecting people to do that. It is, and I'm curious too, and I'm curious how they set it up, because that's another issue I have with, like, games that have, you know, I don't know how definitive an ending this game has, you know, what where it kind of goes in terms of how it concludes. Is it going to be the kind of conclusion where it feels totally natural for Noctis and his bros to go back on the road, or is it the kind of conclusion where you're clearly out of time and space now, which is yeah. what a lot of open world games do, you know? Yeah, it is the thing of, like, like where sometimes literally they'll just put you in there and it'll be like, oh, it's like, this is like, we put you right before the moments of the last mission of the game, now go play around. It's like, why would I do this? this is a, like, bizarre, why would I do this? This is insane. Witcher 3 is a really good example yeah. of that. Um, but Witcher 3 is also set up in such a way where it clearly wants you to just be done when you're done because you do the stuff while you're playing, and I don't think it wants you to do a lot of post-game stuff, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Except for like the DLC, which exists in a different kind it's, of... Yeah, it's like a side story world or something with the DLC. Yeah. So, I don't know. And, and again, so many of these things are flaws of ambition to me, where... It's like the kind of magic they wind up conjuring in this game is the kind of thing I don't know as a designer if you even know that's happening until it happens and then you have these different disparate plans that maybe just can't be rectified with one another. It's a weird thing about game design when you're, you know, 
in the forest for so long working on these individual trees and then the whole thing maybe doesn't work even if a lot of those individual components are so good and so beautiful. Yeah. So let's talk about the combat system. I wanted okay. to address one more thing because I think it's a better like addition to what we were just talking about because it's also I just have a question, Jonathan. Okay. Should I still be doing the side quest stuff? Does that ever become something? Do those ever get good? Are there good side quests in this game at some point? Is I mean, there a side quest that is more than go to this place and pick up three of these things? I think there are ones... I mean, no is the short answer. Okay. I think there are ones... I, again, I think they're there just to encourage you to go explore and stuff. Yeah. I don't think they are like Witcher side quests where there is heavy narrative content where like that's character building and stuff. Um, I think there are ones that are more fun than others. There's um, the guy who looks like Hurley from Lost. Right, yeah, one picture dude. I enjoy those side quests because I just think they're kind of fun and low stakes and they feel very true to kind of what the game is doing with the, the photography and, and Prompto is so happy whenever you take one of those and those are fun. But yeah, I, I think there, there are ones that are more fun than others, but no, I, I know the quest lines end, some of them, but I have not gotten to the end of any of them. And I spent a day just going between uh, Hurley from Lost and Dino the reporter who wants to be a, a jeweler. Yeah. And I, I swear to God, I got to like three different quests with both of them where I said, this has to be the last one, right? And it never was. So I don't know how many there are, and I have not been able to find like a finished quest list online because the game is so new. Because I would love to just look it up like, yeah. when does that side quest line end? And, and like, just look at it as, like, in which one of these are just, like, infinite ones? Because some of them have to be. Because it's, like, some of the dialogue is so generic, I cannot possibly imagine that you would write it that way if they were actually all unique quests. But it's something where it's, like, I, I was enjoying the side quest stuff early on, and then I hit this point where I, like, where they, one, they throw an insane number of side quests at you at once, and then, like... Every single time you turn one in, the fuck you turn it in, and then you look at your mini map and you see a, the question mark has just appeared on that person. And you're like, motherfucker, you too, you too, tomato dude, you too, guy who has like a fan, a van who broke down somewhere, you too, like random motherfucker who wants me to go kill like these three monsters, like you too, Sydney, you too, Dino, you too, Hurley from Lost. Is there not one? You too, like weird frog lady, you too, guy with the dog. Is there not one fucking person on this entire planet? That only wants me to do one thing for them and will not segue into me doing that same thing for them again and again and again. Because it's like, it's something where I had so much fun at the beginning of the game. Just like like exploring around and, and like going to new areas and seeing new stuff. Talking to new people. Like like eating new shit at new diners. And like getting chocobos and all that stuff. I was having a lot of fun. And then I just hit this point where I just like, it just it snapped. Because it was like, because even like going down that whole list, I forgot there's also the Chocobo dude, who's the exact same way. Yes. You go and you talk to him, and he's like, hey, go help this Chocobo. It's like, okay, I'll do that, and had a little bit of fun. And I go back, it's like, hey, I helped the Chocobo. It's like, oh, hey, can you take a picture of this Chocobo? It's like, okay. And I go and take a picture of that Chocobo, and I come back, it's like, oh, hey, a Chocobo ran away. Can you go get it? It's like, fuck you. You have like 10 employees here, dude. To fucking give me something that's not just go to this place and look at this chocobo and then come back. Because that's the other issue I have with the side quest is not only do they have these endless generic chains, but for each individual person, it is the exact same task they give you every single time. You just go somewhere else and do it. Dino just wants you to go pick up gyms. Sydney just wants you to go pick up car parts. Uh, the chocobo dude just wants you to go look at chocobos. Hurley just wants you to go take pictures. Van dude just wants you to go to hit fans. Sword dude just wants you to go kill like three random monsters. 
The fucking tomato dude just wants you to go pick goddamn tomatoes. Frog lady always wants you to get fro- like five frogs that are a different color. Like it's the same task for all the people, and it's driving me literally insane. It's definitely a thing that could have been improved. I think the best way to play it is just do things you find fun and try not to be completionist about it in that way. Because there are none of those are quest lines in the sense of like they will build narratively and have this beautiful ending or anything. I do think some are more interesting than others. The Hurley from Lost one um, progresses more and more where you like learn things about why he's asking you to take the pictures and stuff that feels like a little more narrativized. Uh, and like Cindy's ones. Sydney. God, I it's, yeah, it's, it's it's hard to keep straight in your head when every time you you read Cindy and then you hear them say Sydney. Yes, it's anyways. I want to say call her Sydney because that's a real fucking name. Yeah. But anyway, Sydneys bring you to places that will reveal dungeons, which is nice. Things like that, um, and those will give you more tangible rewards and things like that. Um, the Dinos brought me to a dungeon once, um, so some of them are more interesting than others, and. You know, I really just use them as excuses to get out and explore, and hopefully, I'll, sometimes you do find more interesting quests out in the world because of those. But yeah, I, uh, I don't, because it's a weird thing. I don't inherently hate how they do it. I, it's another thing I think could be presented in a way that makes it clearer that it's like this is not side quests in the way you kind of typically think about them. They're really just to get you out and do it. They're, honestly, they feel an awful lot like Final Fantasy fourteen. That's something I okay. had to bring up. There's yeah. a lot. I of mean, this... it feels like an. It also kind of reminded me of some of like the early parts of Dragon Age Inquisition. Yeah, like had that kind of like, oh, go here and like kill these five things and come back and now, you, oh, I'll also tell you now go over here and kill those five. Like, couldn't I just have like done both of those things at the same time and come back to you, dude? Yeah. No, I mean, there's a lot of this game that definitely feels like they were paying attention to what Final Fantasy XIV was doing um, in terms of certain structure and even some stylistic stuff, and that's one of them. The quests feel very much like yeah. Final Fantasy. XIV. I sure would love it if Dino would just give me a piece of paper that had all the different gems he wanted on it yes. and I could just like because I again I like the process because I you know I like doing this in games that's one of the reasons why I like open world RPGs is I like the process of like heading towards a spot on the map and like knowing like okay this is where my main quest is and then opening up my map and looking as like oh, I can do this along the way and this along the way. There's, like, something about the mm-hmm. scheduled aspect of it that fits in well with this game's road trip stuff and, like, the day-night cycle and camping and all that. That's like, I really like that process. But it was just something where, like, it broke so hard for me yesterday when, like, I just, like, spent... I spent, like, most of the day playing the game, like, kind of actually wanting to do main quest stuff but constantly getting sidetracked by other side quest shit because I would run into a new side quest giver or I would, like, drive past an area where side quest was. I was like, okay, I guess I'll go do that really quick. But now I have to go turn that in and, like, all and like doing all that. It just sucked all this time. And then every time I'd complete a side quest, I would just get fed back the exact same side quest in a different location with, like, five level higher enemies or something. Yeah, generally I think... Uh, with that in mind, one of the ways I enjoyed playing it was taking multiple side quests from the same place, going out and scheduling it, and figuring out, okay, this is five minutes this way, but that one's six, so if I go here first, you know... I mean, that is how I am doing it. Right. That is absolutely how I'm doing it. And then you'll bring them back, and then, yeah, just, um, you know... At at a certain point, I realized, I I think it's part of it just for... And again, it's something I I think they could do more to narrativize, but... It's like, okay, I've done enough of this and now it's time to move on. And, and, and it's almost like that. there's a mundanity to that that I think is mundane for a reason. Does that mean I think it's perfectly executed? No. I mean, it can, I have a because lot of... it can be mundane and also be narratively interesting. It could be like the beginning of Red Dead Redemption where you are doing mundane stuff of helping out on the farm. But it's doing important narrative work and characterization and world building sure. and stuff. 
in a way that like Final Fantasy 15 feels like it has these side quests have an opportunity for that and I also think like they could have changed up the objectives slightly and like written slight like a little bit more dialogue and had it like slightly more involved would do I think a lot to help the game sort of get past some of its pacing and, and, and narrative issues in the, and at least the early parts. No, I agree. I, I I think it's different degrees of how much it winds up bothering you or yeah. not and stuff. But yeah, I mean, um, the other thing I would recommend doing is the hunts. I think are I've, I've done a lot of hunts. I like the hunts. I like they're the hunts. They're actually kind of my favorite part of the game. I think they're really good. I think they're fun. I think one of the things that makes them work also is that if you're in a location, you know, you have a town and the dude at the diner there will give you hunts, and they tend to be all pretty close, so you can kind of just go walk over, do a hunt, bring it back. And then get another one. Again, it, I kind of wish you could just grab like three hunts at once or something. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, certainly I do think you can feel some of the growing pains of Final Fantasy, this, you know, the, the JRPG series trying to evolve into this open world thing. And some of it works absolutely brilliantly. And some of it feels like they weren't quite sure of, on how to do that, you yeah. know? Um, so, and you can feel that. That's just part of the growing pains of this game's weird, wonderful existence. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, okay. Now we can talk about the combat. Because I want to talk about the combat just because it's yeah. such a part of the open world to me. Yeah. And I really love the combat, and I'm interested to hear what you think because I think it's something that for me, that and the dungeons and some of the and the, some of the stuff you do on the open world and stuff, just that's another part of kind of to me like what I would call the secret sauce of just no matter how flawed certain parts of the game goes, the actual just play of it is so fucking solid, and I like it so much. Um, that it really brings me back in over and over. Yeah, I, I kind of, honestly, I run hot and cold on the combat a bit. It's, like, a lot more hot. Like, I, I generally like the combat a lot. I think it's fun. It's engaging. It's obviously, it's, like, visually fantastic. And just, like, the animation work and all the different things of, like, the link-up attacks and stuff that have all these fun, cool animations and just the not just teleporting around and all that shit. Like, that shit just looks awesome and is fun to engage with. But sometimes I feel like occasionally the game maybe bites off a bit more than it can than it can chew with like the the combat like like the battles and like the number of enemies that it throws at you and that kind of stuff of that i think if it's like it's a fun combat system to engage with as long as like things are relatively simple i think when it gets slightly more demanding the mushiness of the combat and like that starts to especially because you know i'm a huge fan of like dark souls and stuff like that and it's there's something about like I, I can get really frustrated and angry when I feel like I should be parrying something, but because the game decided to do one attack animation instead of another, I didn't have enough time to transition into parrying something or rolling and that kind of stuff. And there's an arbitrariness to how much time your attacks take and stuff like that, that normally I'm fine. Every once in a while I've hit a battle where I get really insanely frustrated, even if the, the game is honestly not that difficult. Like, I've only had one character, like, die once in a way that I need to do a phoenix down, and that was because it kind of glitched out and they, like, got stuck in an area where it was on fire and they just died almost immediately. But other than that, like, I haven't had, any, like, it has not actually been difficult, but it's just been annoying when it's like, oh, the camera's gotten stuck behind this fucking tree and I can't see a goddamn thing. Or it's like, how come I didn't parry that? I was fucking holding down circle or I was holding down square and then this thing attacked me. It's like, clearly I should have parried that. Why did, like, I parried that the exact same way two seconds ago. Why didn't it do it this time? And there's just a, like, it's not quite tight enough. And, like, obviously it's a very different combat system and it's not trying to be absolutely tight. And like I said, normally it's fine. But every once in a while I'll get into a battle where I'm like, fucking goddammit, like I just want to like snap the controller or something. 
I have not felt that at all, but I understand where you're coming from. And I think part of this is you and I are coming at this with very different backgrounds. Yeah. In these games, like, I don't... I have nothing against them. I just doesn't... I doesn't do anything for me. I don't like the Dark Souls, Bloodborne kind of... That kind of combat. So I don't have any experience or expectations tied to that. Yeah. Um, and I do think... I totally understand where you're coming from because this superficially has similarities, right? And maybe yeah, more yeah, it's like yeah, it's like just a third person action thing. Yeah, um, you know, I think as like something that Final Fantasy has kind of been moving towards trying to do for a while now of like taking the Final Fantasy general battle system, even though it's changed over the years, and making it an active you know third person kind of thing. I like it on that level an awful lot, yeah. and I think it's a lot of fun, and I think. I'm going to talk about this more maybe later, but I actually think this... People have been talking about, like, how much does Final Fantasy XV really feel like Final Fantasy? And my answer is, I think, way more than any of the 21st century Final Fantasy games. Sure, yeah. Way more. And I actually think being an evolution of the combat system and being an actual 3D combat system in some ways makes it feel more Final Fantasy than sort of grafting on to 3D a turn-based combat system. Or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I think it's obviously much faster than that, but you can see the roots of what Final Fantasy has always been in it, and I like that about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. But it's very fast and crazy, and I think it's very accessible, and I like that about it. I think, you know, obviously, as you say, it, it does have mushiness to it. There are things that are unpredictable. I tend to kind of like the unpredictability of it in some cases, where I think it's... I, I love the kind of orchestrated chaos that it always is, and I think... It's just such a Tetsuya Nomura kind of thing. Sure, It's yeah. like his fingerprints are so on parts of this. Like, you know, it is it is Kingdom Hearts on fucking crack. Um, but probably with more strategy. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, because Kingdom Hearts is really just button mashy as I understand it. And as I've seen my brother play it a lot and trying yeah. to tell me how their strategy, I'm like, but you're just... Anyway. So, you know, yeah, I don't have those problems. I Obviously, there are areas where technically the game can't keep up with what's happening. Although I will say, I am amazed it doesn't happen more. Yeah, like it, it is a gorgeous game, and like the animation quality in particular is what I'm most impressed with most of the time. And that it it chugs sometimes with that, but generally very rarely. I once you get to Altissia, that city is so big and so fucking detailed. That's the only part of the game that is chugged for me. Although you also don't really do combat there, so it's not like it's not going to frustrate in a way that's yeah. like this is breaking the game. Um, but like. Generally, you know, I'm impressed that the camera doesn't get fucked up even more than it does. Because what it's doing, I have never seen a game even attempt something quite like this where it's a third-person combat thing, but it's a third-person combat where you are flying around and transporting and just absolutely crazy bullshit is going on. Yeah. And it's it's really stunning. And, and I just, I don't know, I find it very, like, once I got the hang of it, it's very intuitive and I can just kind of do it and it just feels like I don't... Not that it's mindless. I, it's hard to describe. It's not mindless, but I almost don't have to think about it. I can just kind of instinctively know where to go and what things to do, and I wind up having a lot of fun with it. And I do think when the game gets challenging, it can get really demanding. Like, I've done some higher-level dungeon stuff once in a while. Uh, and Not all the dungeons are, like, underground. Some of them are, they call them dungeons, but you're climbing up a mountain or something, okay. so they're yeah. much more open. Um, and some of those have some really hard encounters, but I found them really rewarding, so... That's... Yeah, for me, like, it's like I'll have to see because it's a pretty big caveat of like not having gotten to the end game and like seeing the combat system pushed to its absolute limits. But it is something where, for me personally, again, like normally I'm totally fine with it, but I do think it's it exists in a weird line of where it's like it could maybe stand to be a bit more mindless, and then I wouldn't mind the 
like the mushiness of like the timing on the parries and stuff like that which like i mean there's not really timing much on the parry stuff but but of like moving from transitioning animations and like the lock-on stuff i think could have used another pass and getting that to work well because it's like weird uh but and then also it, it it is insane to me that this game does not have a bestiary of some sort that like with that like every single time you fight a monster ignis has to do fucking like figure out its weakness again or i have to remember it's like dude we fought imps like two seconds ago. Like, how do you not remember this shit? Like that, that like, it just needs that. So like, because I think that would also make the hunts more interesting. Is like, oh, I fought these things before, so now I know. Oh, like, let me equip my fire sword or something. That'll be more effective. Like that, it could use some. Of that that stuff. is the biggest flaw to me in it because I wind up just I have a pretty standard equipment set. And I just know, okay, that it's going purple on the letters. I'm going to go to my yeah. sword. Now it's orange. I'm good. Yeah, but then every once in a while you're on something that's like, well, I can't find whatever it is because I don't have a fucking thunder axe or whatever. You know, like, that, that That just feels like... Or then when you do see what it is, like, like just let me, like, restore that information in the game somewhere where I can recall it. But, like, yeah, so, like, it could maybe be due to be a bit more mindless, but it could also... If it tightened things up, it could be, like, more exacting and more challenging because it does feel like sometimes it is asking you to do that of, like, being pretty active in combat and dodging around and flanking enemies and stuff like that. And normally that's fine, but every once in a while, like, just the mushiness of it and it wanting to be so sort of chaotic and cinematic in a lot of ways means that it takes something away from the exactingness of the controls and... Like, I don't need it to be exactly Dark Souls, but I wish it was maybe a little bit more closer to, like, Witcher 3 or something, which is still, like, not all the way onto, like, the Dark Souls Bloodborne, like, Ninja Gaiden Bayonetta, that, like, top tier of, like, really precise third-person action stuff, but is, like, you know, you don't know exactly what animation Geralt's going to do when you press square. Like, there's a bank of, like, four or five different ones, but you know, basically, it's going probably going to take about this much time. It's going to hit, like, an enemy about this far away, and I know about when, like, during it I can dodge and stuff like that like it's not super precise but it's precise enough and final fantasy 15 is just a bit too far on the other side of that that i wish it like tightened things up better but we'll see how it goes when like i, I hit way more sort of like sophisticated and, and harder more grueling combat scenarios if maybe it clicks for me better or something i don't know yeah i don't know i mean how much stuff underground have you done um i guess like three or four dungeons at this point it's funny, it's a weird thing, because I really like the dungeons as exploration. I think visually they're really interesting, yeah. I think they're fun to explore, and especially once they start varying it, and they're not just underground, they'll be in a forest, or they'll be on a mountain. Yeah, you saying that they were not all underground, it was very heartening to me, because I think yes. I just hit my, like, the fourth dungeon I did, where it's like, okay, I kind of am hoping the next one's not just a cave, but this one's an ice cave, and this one's a lava cave or something. Yeah, no, that, that's not it at all, There, there's more to it than that, and that's... That is the area where I do think the combat breaks down the hardest is in caves, just because this doesn't isn't really built for a super constrained yeah, space. Yeah, I was feeling that as well. Like it, it gets so much advantage of you being able to like do the point warp up to like yeah. a big like rock or something. And and there like, are some dungeons that are built for it better than others. There's some that have the point warps built in in interesting ways where they're almost like multi tiered. The ice dungeon I think was a good example of that. There's some really fun combat scenarios in that. Uh, and I think some of it I like when you're kind of... It's like, okay, I'm not going to be doing a lot of warp in here. What else can I do? I think some of that's interesting. Um, but clearly it's not what the game was going for as its main thing with that combat. And I actually think if you look at the whole scope of a lot of the dungeons I've seen at least so far, that doesn't feel like that was what it was ever. Like, that. it wasn't supposed to be just caves and stuff. Yeah, so. because also the camera feels weirdly confined yes. in those areas in a way that it's like, it's not... 
like the yeah. camera is designed to be pulled back further and when you get in caves like it kind of it's forced by the geometry to go in tight and like yeah. the combat does not work with a tight camera no it doesn't and so that's yeah um, it's just it just so happens that the first few dungeons you see are kind of tighter caves, but I don't think that by any means speaks for the totality of dungeons in the game. That's good, yeah. Or even that all the dungeons are combat-based. They're not. Um, and as I've heard, some of the really cool post-game stuff is not either. So, But like you're going to be coming up on a dungeon fairly soon that is interesting because it's underground but has bigger spaces, and that's also kind of an interesting thing. Like I do like that it's constantly varying the kinds of things you're seeing. This game visually does not feel repetitive pretty much ever to me. Yeah, uh, and that's that's really cool. I yeah, like I I love the monster designs in this game so much, and I also love the huge like variety of monsters, which adds to that of yeah. just like being like you know there are some sort of mainstays like the imps and stuff that you see a little bit more frequently than others, but in general, I feel like I'm constantly running into new weird, interesting creatures. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's cool. It's fun, and you know, problems aside. God damn, does that battle system look cool? And yeah, they they start doing some stuff later in the game also with like blowing out, like, for narrative reasons, the basics of it and doing different things with it on a visual scale. And you're going to know it when you see it. There's a sequence where I felt like I had been transported into the future and was playing something on the PS5 because I could not believe this thing was running on current generation hardware. And I, I felt feel that sometimes in the open world as it is. I think this game, on a technological level, is demanding things of this hardware that no other game is even dreaming of at this point. Um, but like they go harder and harder on that as the game goes along, and it's just I, I have to go back and look at the disc. And like, they really did fit this on one fucking disc. I don't understand how this. Yeah, game it's was like made. it's like fifty six gigabytes of memory or something. It's yeah. like hey, that's that's nice. Yeah, I just there's a lot of this. I mean, do you, have you felt that sometimes too, where just the technological side of it is like uh, this feels really advanced yeah. for where we are right it, now. It, it's often it's like the, the scenes that deal with scale a lot more. Like well, I just recently did my like the first summon oh thing. Like God, that, the summon that stuff, like fighting the Titan. They like really, and it's something that like I've always loved about this game. Like in the pre-release footage and the demos and everything, it's just like. You know, I am a huge giant monster fan, and like a big reason of that is that like I do get. I, there's something about me, like, personally that I get, like, frightened by and, like, excited by that sense of, like, scale and the disparateness of it. It's one of the reasons why I love Lovecraft Horror so much. It's, like, it just, like, it gets something to me. And, like, this game, like, most games will have a giant monster in it or something. But, like, because of, like, the technical stuff that they need to do to get it to work and, like, the graphical quality of it, it never quite, like, translates to scale for me. It's just, like, oh, that's, like, a character model that's just blown up really big. Here it just feels like that is a giant fucking thing right there like that thing is huge that titan encounter is incredible the summons oh my god like you're right in that it makes you feel it like i forget i'm looking at a tv that's 40 inches in my basement it's like i am in this world and it is like this is the kind of game that if you actually put in vr it would just give you a seizure or something it would be too much and yeah, I Prompto's VR picture simulator. Yes, where you, where you just play as like Prompto trying to sneak a, a, a little picture in the middle of a combat scenario, not have anyone look, and then they see the picture and they're just like, "What the fuck did you take? What were you doing? You were supposed to be shooting this asshole. Why did you take a picture of him?" It's not even a good picture because all the pictures during combat is just like this blurred mess because I was moving at like the speed of light or something. You can yeah. never take a good picture of this Prompto. It's funny. But yeah, the, the the scale stuff, um, yeah, damn, I I don't even know what to say. It's it's some of it is just so mind boggling, and some of it is is like I I really do wonder how this thing is running on the on you know current generation hardware in some sense because it's like 
I, it has to be taxing this thing so hard in some areas. And yes, there is some slowdown here and there, but that there is not more is amazing to me. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it runs way better than like the Platinum demo did that they yeah. put out several months ago. You know? Yeah, in in Luchas at least the open world, I almost never had frame rate dips. Yeah, or anything like that. Sometimes camera issues, which are also completely understandable given what the combat system is. It's not the kind of thing where I'm like, well, how did they not catch that? It's like. Yeah, I'm not sure how I'd fix that either, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I don't know how I'd do any of this because I'm not a game designer, but you know what I mean. So, yeah, and then when you get to Altissia, that fucking city, it is the coolest city I've ever been to in an open world. My biggest, I'm not giving any spoilers, I'm just saying, when you get to Altissia, explore it, spend time in it. Before you kind don't, of do that, the fucking dude, I've, I'm on like chapter six or something, and I've played 18 hours of this game. Yeah. I'm going to explore Altissia, don't it's, worry. But no, I'm, I'm saying to our listeners, yeah, okay, too, yeah. just like. Spend your time there. Don't go do the main quest stuff there until you, you feel like ready. I also think narratively it makes sense to be a little relaxed when you. Is get there, there anyone there that wants me to pick tomatoes for them? No. Okay. Yeah, so. Then I'll then I'll definitely explore around. Um, there's there's a couple little hunts, but mostly there's no side quests. But it's just like being there and just being in it. There's also an arena. I won't say what happens in the arena. Just go to it. It's cool. It's I had a lot of fun with it this morning. I spent like an hour and a half there. There's a bunch of fishing spots. There's a fucking gondola. It's amazing. And that part does chug. It's definitely in the teens and 20s a lot of the time. And there's a weird thing I wound up happening where I would have like, because I just dick around in games and I have Noctis jump all over the place. And Noctis would jump. And while he was in the air, the sound effect for jumping would go off. And then he would hit the ground. And then like three seconds later, you would hear the hit the ground sound effect. Okay, yeah. And again, it's like, it doesn't impair your gameplay because all you're doing is walking around a city. But it is, and, but you also, like, if you look at that city, you understand why it cannot keep a frame rate. And, like, if any game could sell me on enhancements for the PS4 Pro, this is, like, the one that could in some yeah, of those areas. Because yeah. I wonder, I don't even know how you could improve on some of the visuals, but maybe some of the performance. I don't know, but yeah. Because I think this, they have an HDR version and stuff for PS4 uh, yeah, Pro. Yeah, they do, yeah. So, that's cool. If you have one of those, I'd love to hear, like, how the game looks in 4K and stuff, because that's probably pretty cool. Yeah. But yeah, um... What else to say? We've kind of been talking about the open world and the quests and the combat. What other things to talk about at the moment? Uh, I don't know. I I love like it's it's a small thing. Oh, me going to talk about like the menus reminded me of like oh we haven't talked about the fucking music yet, which is fantastic. We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay, yeah, yeah but the, the menus is something that I it's a small thing, but I love the menus of this game. Like top yes. down, like your main menu is awesome. Just like the visual design of it all. I like the weird like unusual suspects looking like all your four dudes just like standing up against the wall like they're fucking taking their their mug pictures or something, but. Uh, but then also the the little tiny detail of when you go shopping for weapons and stuff that it's the like a Final Fantasy one style sprite of all your guys is at the bottom to check uh, whether or not they can equip the weapons and stuff like that. Like there are a bunch of little tiny Final Fantasy details in the menu design and the music and just like in the characters and stuff like that. That even if so much of the specifics of what this game is is uh, is a huge divergence from the traditional Final Fantasy experience. It does, like, you are constantly feel like you are in this world because you have the chocobos and you have the, like, blue, like, gradient menus and you have that music and you have the music in the car and the original music, which recalls the Final Fantasy themes and stuff like that. It always has that presence to it. Yeah, absolutely. I, again, I think this game has elements that are half-baked and don't work, but when it is on, it is so polished and so on. 
And I think the menus are actually a great example of that. And it may sound like a small thing, but I actually think UI speaks to how well a game does yeah. in a larger sense. And yeah, I think it's a you very... You can't wait till we can really talk about Persona 5. Right. No, but I think it feels very usable and very good. And yeah, I love those menus. I love the music in the menus. Just um, all of that is really fun. I love the whole ascension system where you have those points. It feels like a much more usable and sane version of the sphere grid from yeah. Final Fantasy yeah. X. Um because I, this... I, there's some of that I like some of the more like complex trees in the ascension thing. I feel like you could have organized this. Like sometimes it's a pain in the ass. Like I know which one I want, but I have to like scroll around to remember. Like okay, it's this one. Like I feel like yeah. like it's one of those things where it kind of reminds me of Skyrim's uh, level up system, where it's like at first I like the the visual element of the presentation, and then like twelve hours in, I just want to go on a list and like press the thing I want. <laughs> yeah. So there, no, there are definitely some spots in Final Fantasy XV where they go for cool, yeah. even if functionality maybe isn't at 100%. Yeah. So yeah. Um, the, we did, we've we joked about the Chocobos. I really like the Chocobos in this game. I love the Chocobos. Like, it's something where I kind of wish they went a little bit faster just so like, I kind of just only want to be on a Chocobo all the time. One, because they level up your Chocobos. And two, yeah. you can fucking drift in your goddamn Chocobos and that... Conceptually is so insane. I don't know why I wouldn't always be doing that. It's great, and I yeah, the chocobos are a lot of fun. I think the basic system of how they work is really good. Maybe they could be a little bit faster, although they do get faster if you level them up. Yeah, they get more stamina and stuff. And you can feed them some of that grass, and yeah. that's I guess is like speed or something for them because they get really I, fast. I gave him, I gave my chocobo one when like because there's like one of the main quests where they temporarily you lose your car, and so you have to like travel by foot or by chocobo. For a little bit, and I had a grass thing that I was saving up. I'm like, oh, I'll I'll feed him this now. And I, I did not realize how much faster they went when they, they took go some really of that grass. Fast. They go really fucking fast. They do that. That chocobo, it's like he took a, a snort of cocaine and then yeah. he's just running. Yeah, but it, yeah, I, and I love how the chocobos work in with the main system. Where like when you have Ignis make food, you also feed the chocobo, and you have the chocobo for a set number of days and things. And I think this... they could have maybe done away with that. You have to buy chocobo tickets. Like it's kind yeah. of a weird system that doesn't make much sense to me, especially because you retain the exact same Chocobo every single time. It, it is weird just because, yeah, I, I, I mostly I just agree. Don't, yeah, it's, like, it's a vestige from other Final Fantasy games. Yeah. Like, 10 did that. I, I don't know if 12 does that. I don't think 13 has Chocobos because it's soulless, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, it is just something where it's like, I kind of, I understand conceptually a little bit about why they, they would do that for, like, the, like, world flavor stuff. But, and, like, as a gameplay mechanic, it feels so insignificant. It's not it like there's a, like, because all you have to do is just buy all the tickets you want. But then they just put this artificial restriction on, well, you can only buy seven. It's like, okay, well, fuck you. Like, five days from now, I'll just buy more tickets. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, it's... I, I can see some of the logic in just that it's part of your routine when you go into towns, and I think some of that mundanity to the routines is important to what it's doing. That didn't necessarily need to be part of it. Yeah. So, yeah, but I love overall, though, other than that, like the way the chocobos are integrated is so good. I've probably spent more time on a chocobo in 15 than every other Final Fantasy combined, and Prompto's love for chocobos and the way he says, Arigato, chocobo! It's, yeah, it's one of my favorite, like, repeated dialogue lines in the whole game. It's, uh, and... While maybe they could have varied the music a little more, the actual Chocobo... This is easily the best Chocobo song in a Final yeah. Fantasy game. It is it is the Chocobo theme, but like the way it's done with this like violin solo... Not even violin, it's like a fiddle. Yeah. And it's just... I love it. It's... it's I, I want to say I get tired of it, but I kind of don't. <laughs> it's, just, it, it's just something where every once in a while I feel like... Because like you have the Chocobo music playing when you're on the Chocobo 
all the time, <laughs> and you have like your custom Final Fantasy music playing in your car all the time, I feel like there's just stretches of the game where I kind of like, can I just listen to the normal soundtrack a little bit here? And like, it's like, it's something that it was the, it's something I kind of missed once I was driving the car and driving, riding Chocobos around a lot more is that you kind of don't hear the normal soundtrack outside of cities and like dungeons that much anymore. And battles and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. battles, obviously, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I actually wish they had a Final Fantasy fifteen soundtrack in the car. Oh, uh, do, do you don't unlock that at some point? I was hoping I would find it. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. I, that might be a post-game thing, because maybe they don't want to like have yeah. later game tracks or something. But I wish like some of the basics were there, like just some of the overworld stuff. And then maybe it could unlock more. So, yeah, there are some sound. I think the only of the main numbered games I haven't found is I haven't found two yet. Yeah, uh, I haven't found two either. I suspect that two might not even be in there because it's a weird one. I, there's a lot of two tracks on the Dissidia soundtrack, though, that like remixes of the two okay. music. Yeah, so uh, Eleven has five soundtracks, which is well, I mean, it had like a billion expansion packs, so it yeah. makes sense. I haven't found any 14 yet either. I don't know if that's in there. I feel like I might have found a Memories of Final Fantasy fourteen. Okay, good. Because 14 yeah. is fucking great music. Yeah, I, no, I yeah. definitely did because I remember like listening to some of it because I have never played really much of fourteen and be like, yeah. oh, this is really good music. Uh, they all are. I mean, it's yeah. like, you make fun of thirteen all you want, Thirteen has fucking gorgeous yeah. music. And, and it was something like putting all the soundtracks next to each other in the car, it made me realize how much like... Maybe honestly, Final Fantasy one and three are my two favorite yes. Final Fantasy soundtracks. Secretly, yes, someone agrees with me about three, and you're talking three about has, real three, not yeah, six. Yeah, like real, actual, like Japanese yes. Final Fantasy three. Like, because I, I played the DS version, because you also played the DS version of that. That was right? my first yeah. Final Fantasy. Like that. Is... My first Final Fantasy was one because I'm old school, and they okay. had a good GBA remake of that. I, I wound up playing the GBA version after that, but yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, 3 is a really good game, and like, fucking shit, that soundtrack is awesome. It's so, it does not get nearly enough attention. It is yeah. phenomenal. Like, one of the most magical moments in this game to me was playing the Boundless Ocean track from 3 yeah. while you go by the ocean for the first time. Not not the first time, it was not the Golden Quay part, but when you're over by Lestalum. And you go past that a little bit. And yeah, I, that was a track that was playing the first time I went to that city. Yeah, yeah. like the city that is in the, the open world area in Dusk so, And you know, so all this stuff, the chocobo and the music and all that things, I think I can maybe put better into words what I was trying to say earlier. By the time you get to the point where you leave the open world, it has been internalized, for me at least, as nostalgia. Like, I'm sitting sure, here yeah. talking about these experiences, and they've become these beautiful, nostalgic memories for me of just being on the road with my bros and being like, all right, we have to go do this one main thing, but I'm also going to try to help this guy find his tomatoes, and we're going to take this photo, and then we found a dungeon, and we're going to do all these things, and we're camping out under the stars, and we have our chocobos, and the world is kind of shitty at the moment, but I have these three brothers, and this is something I am going to love and remember and I think that being internalized as nostalgia for you is why the structure of the game works and why it has to go linear in the second half and become something different because the second half is so much about challenging Noctis beyond those essentials he thought he had and having that be for the player an experiential nostalgia is almost more important to me than if it was thematized and I think it could be thematized more and I think it is because I think there's stuff like Sid and his memories of his journey with King Regis, I think it's pointing you in that direction of that interpretation. But just having it there and having it be just part of the gameplay and that you experience that and become kind of one with Noctis on that level, that's why I'm able to not ignore, but kind of overlook and be at peace with some of the flaws in the pace and some of the holes in the narrative and things like that. Because that basic experience 
is what the open world part of this game is about. The narrative as it stands really kicks in when it goes linear. And, you know, I, I, I'm going back and forth on should the open world part have had less narrative or more. It's a weird right, yeah. space. So, yeah, that's that's one thing I would say. Sure, like I can see that. Although one one flaw I cannot overlook is, going back to the music stuff, how the fuck 2 Xanarkand is not on the Final Fantasy X soundtrack in the game. That's weird. Like, that is the Final Fantasy X song. That's the fucking song from that game. They have other tracks that have that theme, but not that exact but track. But that is the one. Like, yeah. that, you know, they have One Winged Angel in Final Fantasy VII. They have Man with a Machine Gun in Final Fantasy VIII. How do you not have Tusanakin on Final Fantasy X? Like, that's the fucking song from the game, guys. Yeah. It's also a weird thing, like, which soundtracks they chose. Like, 1 and 3 are the remastered soundtracks from the PlayStation and DS, yeah. respectively. 4 is just the Super NES one, which I think is fine, but it also does have a remastered soundtrack. Yeah. Um, 10 is the original, even though there is a... And I do think that's also better, but they, they didn't use, like, the HD version soundtrack. Um, I just found that kind of... It's None of that's bad. I think they made the right choices for everyone, but I think it's kind of fun to kind of pick that apart. Yeah. Because, like, I realized I didn't have the soundtrack for Final Fantasy 1, uh, and I was looking because the iTunes store has both the PlayStation and the 8-bit version, and I was listening to both. I'm like, okay, that's the PlayStation version playing in 15. I'll buy that one. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but those soundtracks are great. And the soundtrack for Final Fantasy 15 itself... Jesus Christ. Really fucking good soundtrack. So this is Yoko Shimomura, yeah. who has not scored a Final Fantasy game before, but she is the composer on Kingdom Hearts, which we can make fun of Kingdom Hearts all day. Those games are really good music. Like, yeah. yeah, I don't remember what the name of the town is, but like the one town from Kingdom Hearts has like one of my favorite like RPG sound music tracks ever. And I don't even really like those games. Yeah, she's a brilliant composer. And I think having her move up to the big leagues kind of with Final Fantasy she should just be the default Final Fantasy composer. Like, I think she has a voice for this series and kind of the the tone as it is of Final Fantasy that since Nobuo Uematsu left, they've never quite had. And I think the non-Uematsu scores are really good and sometimes absolutely beautiful, but this, I think, goes that extra mile of connecting back to the old themes in a really beautiful way. Like, just listen to how she does, you know, the, the end battle screen or the yeah. menu music or the prelude or the chocobo song. But then adding on to that all these beautiful new compositions. And if you haven't gotten out of the open world section yet, you haven't even heard anything yet. Like the, 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 the stuff in the second half of this game, I can't believe how good it is. Awesome, so, yeah. Like I, I am in love with the main theme of the game that they like have redone in a number of different ways. Even like where I am so far because it just has that like almost like courtroom ball-esque mm-hmm. element to it that's so good and like another thing that's like it's not just like that the music is good but like the way they implement it in the game is frequently just like really kind of inspired is I love any of the music when you're in a town particularly like the the track that's in Hammerhead and you're just walking around and it's playing that track and then you walk into a diner or a storefront and then it like transitions into a like store version of it as like if like the music is playing diegetically in the store as like a little jingle like that's just such a perfect little touch you know I, yeah. I love shit when games do that. It's kind of, it reminds me of like when you play Doom and you go into the pause menu and like the, the most of the track other than like the bass leaves the song and you're just like looking at the map while like the bass of the music's playing. Yep. Um, and I always enjoy going into the menus and hearing just the menu music because it's just gorgeous. It like yeah. it encourages me to just dick around with gear and stuff because I want to hear more of that piece. Yeah. Yeah, no. And it's definitely, I, I think she has such a clear voice because I do think it has that Kingdom Hearts thing that 
again, I, I don't really love those games either or anything, um, but I do love how they use music and that she's really good at tying songs to locations yeah. and things like that. And just there's so much that comes out in like a location's identity through how she does the music, like which parts use a harmonica and which parts have that more stately ballroom kind of thing and which parts are high adventure and things like that. It's, it's such a varied soundtrack and yet it has such a unified voice to it, yeah. which is a really rare kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it's so good. Yeah, the uh, the soundtrack doesn't come out officially until the end of this month in Japan. Uh, I've got it on pre-order from Amazon Japan because I just put it in my next order of those Dragon Ball books, which we nice, talked about. Yeah. Um, but I know you can also get it. The Square Enix store in the U.S. will be selling import copies, and you can pre-order those. So nice. if you're interested, you can get it as a four-disc CD, or because for some reason Square Enix does this, you can get it as a Blu-ray audio disc. But you, ha- you would have to have a Blu-ray drive in your PC. Yeah, to rip the music. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe you have a Blu-ray player in your car, and that's like that's the only way you can listen to music. Who knows? I don't know. So I'm getting the CD version because, I one, I own a Mac, which can't play Blu-rays at all anyway. So, you know, yeah. I'm just glad it, like, Final Fantasy XIV doesn't even have a CD version. It's only Blu-ray, and it pisses me off. What? I can't get that music. That's very unusual. It is. So anyway, um, but yeah. Um, So what else should we talk about with this game? Uh, This is, like, this is just a super minor point, but for whatever reason, this reminded me of it. The one thing I wish this game handled a little bit better is, uh, because there have been a lot of games recently that do this very well, is... Having dialogue, like it, managing dialogue interruptions in a natural way, where it's like, because this just happened to me like three times earlier today as I was doing critical main story mission stuff, and I was like on the road, and someone was saying something in the middle of their sentence, like Ignace is just like, there's an Empire ship above us, and then like it cuts off the dialogue, and then the dialogue doesn't pick up again, and it fucking like once I'd be like, okay, whatever, like because normally like those little back and forths are like a couple of sentences. It happened to me three fucking times in like the span of a couple of hours. I was like, Ignis, shut the fuck up. I know. Yes, there. I'm level thirty two. Yeah, there's a couple of fucking level sixteen robots in that ship. We will deal with it. I want to hear what Prompto had to say about whatever. You know, like I want to... Like the story has been really thin so far. I, it, I'm i not having a lot of tolerance with you interrupting the fucking dialogue right now, dude. Because it's like, you know, like... It's a, it's a problem with video games of having... Particularly open world games of having to juggle that stuff. But I've played plenty of games this year. Like even like Uncharted 4. Where like you would like... Will be able to naturally transition into like... Sam telling you a story. And then you hit a rock and they go like... Ugh! And then like... And it's like... Ugh! Uh, anyways, and then translate going back into the story, like yeah, it's just like I it really frustrates me when I miss some dialogue because of that. It hasn't happened to me with anything that important, but yeah, like just sometimes with like their little yeah. anecdotes too, and it, it's too bad. Yeah. Obviously, it's like it's like a complete hit or miss whether or not that will happen happen to you or not. But like the fact that it happened to me multiple times, like in quick succession, it's just like bad luck. It's like yeah, they should have designed in a way that would have accounted for that. Yeah. Um. So. I'll just say a little bit about the second half. Okay. Not spoilers or anything, just that I really, really like it. I think it's a really, as I said before, weird thing the game does in in abandoning the open world halfway through and going more linear, and I was super curious how that would work, but um, pretty much from the moment that starts, it, it starts landing, the narrative hits, and I think... Uh, I was I am surprised at how emotionally engaged I am with this game and I was playing it like up to the moment I had to leave to come to your house to record this podcast and I really just want to go home and play more of it because I'm really into it at this point and you know um, I don't think I have that much left so I'm kind of curious I'll either finish it probably tonight or tomorrow night 
Um, but man, I, this game has some scenes that are going to be burned into my mind forever. And yeah, I love it. Cool. Yeah. I'm really excited to see like where this game goes. Cause I feel like I have had a weird, like again, while I have like really enjoyed it overall, I have had a weird, like up and down experience with it where like, I'll be like on such a high and be like, Oh, this game is so good. And then I'll hit like a couple of side quests from like, I don't want to fucking do this anymore. And then I'll hit like something new. It's like, go to a new area. It's like, Oh, this is amazing. And all these enemies are so cool. And then like, it's like, wait, what the fuck is going on in the story? And it's like, I've just been so like, it feels like the game has so much great in it and it keeps on getting in the way of itself to me in a way that's like really frustrating. And I'm, I'm hoping that like, I'm really curious to solve some of those problems for me. I'm really curious to hear what your reaction is going to yeah. be. Cause I think when I was around your point in the game, like that number of hours, I was feeling some of the same things. And I don't, I just, it, there came a point where, like, I don't know if I made peace with it or something more tangible changed or it was just my attitude. I really can't pinpoint what it was. But by the end of when I was done with kind of the open world part and then moving into everything I've done today pretty much with the linear stuff, um, man, I, I totally recognize that this is an imperfect game and I don't know a scenario where a game with this kind of production history wasn't going to be a little imperfect around the edges and stuff. Right. Um, but I love it so much and in its highs more than I even frankly thought possible so you should watch Kingsglaive you should watch Brotherhood (laughs) you have to watch Kingsglaive you really should probably watch Brotherhood too because it's really good and but I I I love this game and I recommend it and yeah I I think this is this is not one of those Final Fantasies that people are going to be talking about as one that maybe ruined the series this is a, a, I think, pretty glorious rebirth for this yeah. series. Although I, I am curious to see, like, once the, the larger public has had a chance to sort of, like, get through the game and let, like, sit, I'm curious to see how, like, the larger public is going to feel about it or not, like... That's a good question. Because it, because it is a game where it's like, I can totally see someone hitting a point, like, where I am in this game and having less tolerance for some of this stuff and just being like, nope, fuck it, I'm done with this game. Like, I cannot stand the way this game handles, like, this, this, and this. Well, I definitely think there's a risk with American gamers who are used to, who maybe don't play JRPGs, but are seeing, oh, it's Final Fantasy XV, but I'm, it's an open world and I have a car, and play that, and I think would hit a wall really fast, because this is so not, like, it looks like an open world game superficially, and it is so not Skyrim, or The Witcher, or Grand oh, yeah, Theft Auto, or any of those, those things. It is so vastly different than those, and even if it looks like that on the surface, you just, you kind of have to know a little bit about what you're getting going in. Um, and I also wonder if, you know, I think there are some character nuances and some emotional high points that have hit me so hard. And I wonder, frankly, given what I've read in those English subtitles, if that even exists in the dub, some of that stuff. And I, I wonder if that's muted some responses to those things that I've really loved that I haven't heard people who played it in English talk about as much. Um, you know, I mean, they're just so high on all those damn puns, man. Like, they're just so clever. Well, and there's just, again, I think there's things that are very, like, I think Noctis is a super Japanese character. Oh, absolutely. And I yeah. don't think that kind of character ever comes across well in dubs. But, like, you know, that actor has such a good anime scream. And yeah. Noctis having an anime scream is very important to his character. As characters who have anime screams, that, that tends to be the case. Yes. So, yeah, I, I'm curious about those kind of reaction things, too. Yeah, you know, it's, but, but no matter, like, how you feel about it, like, it is definitely, it is an insane, ambitious, unique, absolutely singular game. Like, it's, it's, like, I, it, as, as vexed as I am by a lot of its sort of constituent parts of where I am so far in the game, like, 
I still, I do kind of want to like say, okay, fuck you, Dino. Fine, I'll go get your goddamn gym, you piece of shit. And then I'm, not, I'm just gonna sell it. I'm just gonna still sell the stupid amulet you gave me because I found a different, a better one in the grass about three miles that way. You asshole. Maybe you fucking like walk around and smell the roses and talk to the old dude in the diner. You could find this fucking shit for yourself, dude. This game definitely follows the Final Fantasy tradition of you can go buy your like side gear of like your your amulets and stuff. But you would be stupid too because you find them in the world and they're better than what you're going to yeah, buy. You, yeah, you're going to buy your little like green choker or something and then a minute later you're like, oh, this is the ancient encrusted ring of Eldrathafor that, that was forged in the heart of the fires of the gods that grants you plus 25 HP. Nice. All right. So that's Final Fantasy 15. We'll probably talk about it more next week. I'm sure we will. Um, other games coming out. We're coming up on the end of the year. So I have... Final Fantasy 15 to finish and a couple other games, smaller games to play before I make my top 10. Yeah. And I'm sure you're in the same place. I, so. I bought Thumper the other day on PSN because it was on sale. And I've wanted to play that. It's a weird looking rhythm game and I've wanted to play it for a while. So I will move into that after Final Fantasy 15. Let me know how that is. I've wanted to yeah. play that too, even though every time I hear it, I just think of the character from Bambi. And I think of a very different game. It, it certainly does not look like the character from Bambi is in this game. Okay. That's too bad. You might be disappointed. Yeah. If he was, he would probably be eaten by some sort of like ancient deity while like industrial metal plays. Well, anyway, we're moving into the end of the year. Fun end of the year stuff happening. So yeah, some lists are going to get made. Yep. Some cuts are going to get made. I'm going to have to put the best game of the year on a separate list this year because <laughs> it's going to be against the rules. Yes. All right. So we will uh, see you guys next week. Yeah. Do you know more Final Fantasy? And I'm just, I got to go get those tomatoes, man. He needs them. He needs them.